one point I realized that my doubt had taken a really unhealthy turn because I was questioning things that actually happened to me that I had experienced directly. Like for me, it's not like I looked at the scientific worldview and alternative worldviews and through an intellectual process came to believe that this one's better than that one. It started with the experiences I referenced before, like in Taiwan, for example, where I directly experienced phenomena that science as an institution and as a system of metaphysics says are impossible. Yep. Been there many times. What am I going to believe? You know, the authorities or my own lying eyes? Like it came (laughs) down to that. (laughs) Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is counterculture philosopher and author Charles Eisenstein. Charles's newest book, The Coronation, Essays from the COVID Moment, has just been released, and you can find it on Amazon, bookshop.org, or chelseagreen.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. We hope you enjoy Paul talking with Charles Eisenstein about waking up to reality. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, we're going to talk about waking up to reality with Charles Eisenstein. Charles was brought to my attention by quite a number of people, actually. Uh, one of them was Kyle Kingsbury. Another one was my buddy, Nathan, R- Nathan Riley, uh, who has the Holistic OBGYN podcast. I'm sure you know about Kyle Kingsbury's podcast. And then various other people kept emailing me your articles, Charles. So welcome. Yeah. Happy to be here, Paul. Thank you. I was you. just with Kyle Kingsbury like three days ago. Yeah. He's my soul yeah. brother, man. Yeah. And um, yeah, people all over the world were were and still are <laughs> emailing me your articles going, Paul, you got to read this. I think you'd like this guy. You got to get him on your podcast. So I reached out to you a while back and so here we are. So I'm really excited to talk about some of the real issues I think that are going on in the world. And I've read several of your articles and listened to some of your interviews. And I think that you are philosophically well-grounded is what I would say. And you're a great writer too. So Charles, you've developed quite a reputation as a philosopher, a deep thinker, and a man who has some honest opinions on ways we can restore balance within humanity and between humanity to uh, humanity, technology, and nature. So I'd love it if you can share an overview of the developmental forces and education that led you to becoming the Charles Eisenstein that you are now known to be by so many. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Paul, for the for the question and for having me on the show. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny, the uh, my education, a lot of what I do today is um, a product of my rebellion against my education and my <laughs> <Good>. dissatisfaction <laughs> with it. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> like if I'm like, you know, hiring or something like that, uh, college dropouts, they that's a plus, you know, high school dropouts, that's like a double plus. Yes. So, so I was unfortunately not quite strong enough of spirit to do that, although I almost dropped out of college, but... But, you know, I, I um, even as a kid, I was very philosophical. I wanted to understand, uh, 
like the deep questions. Like I asked, like, why am I here? And what is real? And I didn't necessarily quite have words for them at the time, but I was dissatisfied with the version of reality and normality that was presented to me. And I carried that into, um, like in college, I, I went to Yale University. I studied mathematics and philosophy uh, because that's where the deepest answers are in or supposedly in our culture. Like that's like the pinnacle of abstract knowledge that's supposed to be the foundation for everything else. And I was deeply dissatisfied with it and couldn't escape the feeling that it was bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like very highly elaborated and intelligent bullshit that somehow, even if it touched on the deep questions, it also tried to escape them at the same time. And that the answers were not, and okay, again, this is like 20, 30 years later that I'm back projecting onto this, but I can say now that the answers were not in the whole approach to knowledge that was championed there called abstraction. And really, truth um, has a bodily component, has a physical component, has a material component. We are beings of the flesh. And so this, this was one of the experiences that, so I had this dissatisfaction, right? That it wasn't enough to make me drop out, but it was enough to turn me into a slacker. Or a, or a professor's big pain in the ass. I did a little bit of that as well, but mostly I just wanted to get out of there. And so I fled to Taiwan and there confirmed my suspicion that reality is a lot bigger than I'd been told. And that happened through psychedelics on the one hand, and secondly, just through interfacing with a radically different culture that, that, that acknowledged phenomena that my scientific education said were impossible, were superstitious. And like there I was experiencing it firsthand and a lot secondhand too, because I was surrounded by people who took experiences related to like traditional Taoism, shamanism, Qigong, uh, ghosts, divination as normal. And, and, and like, so this is like, I was like, I had to take that data point in, not to mention the psychedelic data points. And that, yeah, I could go on and on, but but maybe I'll leave it at that for now. I think that's great. I, at least I know I can get a job with you if I lose my uh, income because I left school in the ninth grade for the same reasons. <laughs> yeah, I just figured it out myself and found that the best way to learn is to find people that were very good at what you wanted to know and were proving tangibly that they were very good at it instead of people that just talked about it a lot. And that's really how I built my whole institute is just going mm -hmm. around the world for many, many years to the smartest people I could find on any given topic because they demonstrated results. What, what, uh, what are the core values you use to guide your life? And what are the core values you feel humanity has lost touch with or needs to regain if we are to avoid a terrible sixth mass extinction, if we even get that far? environmental crisis, technological crisis of greater proportions than we have now, a devastating war, or a complete degeneration of the human species, which one could argue we're in right now. But 
I, you know, being a philosopher and having looked into the things that you've looked into based on what I've seen of your work, I really felt this is an important question because I tell people your yes has no value until you learn to say no. Mm. And you don't know when to say yes or no if you don't have core values. So what you do is you just act out of your unconscious. And that's what leads people to getting uh, inoculated with things that are bad science and have nothing on the ingredients label and are secret and all that shit. Um, and mm -hmm. sticking with religions that make life miserable and tell you that God will burn you in hell and all sorts of other, you know, what I would call um, sad and often, you know, what, uh, what else could I say? Sad, but uh, also an indication that people aren't taught how to think. They're taught what to think. So I'd love to hear what you have to say with regard to these values, you know, that, that are relevant. Yeah, really interesting that you're weaving in the yes and the no. That's been a major theme of my life in the last couple of years, uh, which goes even deeper than, you know, not being taught how to think. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a foundation. Like, if you don't have um, firm sovereignty over your yes and, you no, and your no, then it's not like you need better instructions on how to think. You're not going to be able to think independently if you don't have that. Um, and I, I, I saw some of the, you sent me the questions, some of the questions in advance, and, and I think this yes and no thing can come up um, in some of the later questions. Um, because I also want to, like you, so you asked, like, what are the values that guide my life? I'm not actually sure if it is values underneath my yes and my no. But, and because and, I was thinking about that question, I'm like, okay, I have these core values, but I flatter myself to think that they really guide my life. Values of love, of truth, of honesty, of beauty, of life itself. Um, so I was thinking like, you know, not a lot of people would invoke those values. Mm -hmm. Pretty those are, those are quite high, high ideals though. Right. I'm speaking about, you know, I categorize values into my four doctor system. What are your values around what is happy making for you? Mm -hmm. What are your values around movement? What are your values around diet? What are your values around rest, introspection, and having time to be with yourself? Because without those four categories of values, I can guarantee you, you will end up being a sick person and you will end up having a lot of pain in your life. But, you know, as a philosopher, I see what you're referring to. But you're really dealing with very, very deep philosophical okay. ideas that are open up to, to so much relativistic opinion that it can leave you in a quandary trying to make a decision about, is this woman my ideal of beauty or is she calling me at my heart level? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I get you now. Yeah. Um, I can say like. I mean, I could talk about, you know, my health practices, you know, my uh, um, natural, organic, holistic orientation and all that kind of stuff. But I'm sure that you've had a lot of that kind of conversation already. And like, I'm not, you know, some highly advanced body hacker, although I do draw from people like yourself, you know, and, and that whole movement and do my cold plunging and my running and my swimming, you know, and 
I call that bioharmonizing. I hate the word hacking. Do you? It's yeah, just, actually, because it's an insult. It is, right, because it's, it's like it's we can insult. improve on the body. It's an insult like can, to four billion years of evolution. Yeah. But you yeah, know, that's a good point. J- just just to add to that, because I understand what you're saying, but but there's there's also the values of what is your values around freedom? What is your moral values? What is your values mm-hmm. around um, the right to choose? Uh, the values that you know, I I can guarantee you that during since the beginning of this COVID pandemic, you had to really reach into your values and were probably like me and Kyle and all the big 12, really Sawyer G, Cherry Tenpenny, pushed right up against a real conundrum where if I speak my truth right now, I could lose everything. Yep. And, and I told my, I have two wives, Angie and Penny. I said, look, I've got to walk a very tight, very skinny rope right now, but I refuse to not tell the people that listen to me what my truth is because I've been on this planet for 60 years. I'm a trained elite soldier and I smell an enemy very, very, very close and it's very dangerous. And we're in a war of a type that's never been fought before. So that's what I'm talking about mm-hmm. values. Right? Okay. So yeah, let me, let me, instead of naming them, let me just tell you a little bit of my story around um, my COVID descent. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, I don't even like using that word because historically, like as far as like plagues go, it's a pretty tepid pandemic. Well, that's why I called it a plandemic. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't use that word either because, well, okay, we can go into that. Um, How about a scam? Let's just say at the beginning, um, I felt this intense foreboding. People ask me, what's going on? Like, this was like February or March of 2020. I said, it is a hysteria which doesn't mean that it is only hysteria and that I don't believe anybody was dying and there was no such thing as a virus, et cetera, et cetera. But whatever else it was, it was also hysteria. And and I saw like 40 or 50 years of progress and professed belief in alternative and holistic therapies just go out the window. Um, And everybody just defaulted into lockstep to what I had thought was an obsolete orthodoxy, like the whole war on germs. Like what about like all of these publications in mainstream media about how dirt is so important for you and it's important to get sick and important, like this whole emerging understanding that health is not something that you can achieve in isolation, but that health is a relationship. Amen. To human beings, to the microbial world, to the soil, to other plants and animals, you know, like, like a potted plant is never healthy. A dandelion in a field is almost unkillable. And, and so like I thought, okay, we're getting it, we're getting it. And then all of a sudden COVID comes along and I discovered like even the most alternative people, like even yoga teachers, you know, Amen. And, and and like the psychedelic community and Jordan and, Peterson and yeah. Deepak Chopra from what I was told. Yeah, like totally. I mean, when I heard Deepak Chopra got vaccinated, I about I almost shit my pants. <laughs> yeah. So, so this, so, okay. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was, I was pretty outspoken 
Um, and I said, and this was, I published The Coronation. It was a, like this really long essay that was read by millions of people because this was before the censorship. This is before things got so polarized that people would discard anything that didn't immediately aggrandize their own viewpoint. So it had a really wide reach. And then I got a lot of flack. Uh, people saying, you know, like literally, Charles, you are killing people. You are you have blood on your hands for um, propagating doubt about the scientific reality of this. I got the same and, thing and still and so, do. So I, what, what that did is it made me question everything. I'm like, what if they're right? How would I know it if they're right? Only if I question everything. So, because they believe that they're right. Everyone believes that they're right. How do I know that what I believe is true? How am I attached to my, I mean, this, and this, like, I've been, you know, writing about the war on germs and the, the questionable narrative around vaccines and so forth, not as my main thing, but like since t- 2003, you know, like this is, I've built my, the entire edifice of my life and career on ideas that hadn't been that controversial just because they, you know, were kind of ignored. But now all of a sudden I'm asked to question my attachment to my system of knowledge. How do I know for sure? And, and, and I went into like a period of doubt and despair. Partly the despair was like, what's happening on this planet? Um, but a lot of it was because these, these voices got inside. And at one point I realized that my doubt had taken a really unhealthy turn because I was questioning things that actually happened to me that I had experienced directly. Like for me, it's not like I looked at the scientific worldview and alternative worldviews and through an intellectual process came to believe that this one's better than that one. It started with the experiences I referenced before, like in Taiwan, for example, where I directly experienced phenomena that science as an institution and as a system of metaphysics says are impossible. Yep. Been there many times. What am I going to believe? You know, the authorities or my own lying eyes? Like it came down to that. (laughs) I don't think your eyes are lying. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it's called your own experience. Exactly. And, and I'm like, I have to trust this. Like, this is the, the, even if it's wrong, even if, you know, I'm crazy and I didn't have the experiences I thought I had, I can't trust anything else but that. And so I came to that foundation and rebuilt from there. And then like you, I saw a, a descent into like a technological dystopia that would not be worth living in no. for my children. No. And so, and I had a similar conversation. I'm like, okay, I'm going to speak out again. Um, and this would have been in 2021 then where I really like, you know, got in trouble. Um, I'm like, yeah, bad things could happen to us. Cause at that time, the, um, uh, war against the unvaccinated was in full force. The, the, the censorship, you know, it looked like we were headed toward an Orwellian future. And, and there's a pause in that now, but I still don't, I'm not sanguine about that. But at that time, it looked scary. It did. To speak out. And I'm like, 
I could play it safe. I could keep my head down. I could go retreat into some little intentional community bubble somewhere. We can homestead and so on and so forth. But then what world is Carrie going to live in and his children and their children? I'm like, I'm not that important. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak out regardless of the consequences because I'm going to die someday. Really? Yeah. Like I'm with you all the way, man. I've got, yeah. you know, I've got a 42 year old with a one year old child. I've got a, a six year old boy and a girl that's about to turn three. And, you know, I'm like, what, what, how in the world can I watch my kids go into this? They're going to see more change in the first 20 years of their life than I saw in all 60 years of my life or more. And it's not looking like it's changed for the better. You know, I don't want my children in a digital communist corporate pig farm being harvested for their data and manipulated electronically and turned into animals. And when you start surveying the people that are behind this, we're dealing with some pretty seriously psychologically challenged people, in my opinion. And so I'm just saying I'm with you. I had all those concerns and, you know, we, we put everything we could into and are into making our property fully sustainable. So no matter what happens, if the power goes off, no food, no water, we've got water, we've got our own food, we've got our own animals, we've got our own gardens, we've got solar power and at least do our best to protect the children so that they can learn about how crazy the damn world is and get educated on how to stay in the game. So it, it really, for me, it just put a, a great big fire on my ass and said, okay, I'm going to get into this thing and I'm going to try to wake people up as fast as I can because I trust my instincts. I've, they've got me here and my instincts have between my instincts, my intuition and my connection to my own soul and my spiritual practices. I spent 38 years guiding people through trouble successfully. And when it comes time to guide yourself through trouble, you better be good at it or you're going to be in trouble. So, you know, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about these because these things do get deep and they do get scary and they do get challenging. And I think it's important for people to hear from a man like you that asks himself deep questions and honest, honestly does his best to answer them. So sorry for the interjection. I just wanted to share some empathy with you and say, I'm right with you. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. A lot of people have gone through a similar process. Like it's posed the question to a lot of us, what do I actually stand for? Um, what do, how, and how deeply do I trust my instincts? Even when like, you know, I mean, people would come to me with very um, thorough critiques of my positions on everything related to COVID. And then I, you know, when you get one of those, then you like go to the people on your side and you read them, you know, and, and what I came to is like, there are actually intelligent, thoughtful people on both sides. And if I'm left only with which authorities and all of them know more than me, like if I, I could, you know, read Jessica Rose, you know, or Toby Rogers or one of the, the or, you know, um, Peter McCulloch, you know, and they know way more than I do. And then I can read 
uh, orthodox virologists and microbiologists, and they know more than I do too. So I can't make my choice based on authority because there's authorities on both sides. I can't make it from my own laboratory and my own research because the fact that these PhD scientists have done their own research and have their own laboratories and violently disagree with each other means that that's not going to solve it by itself too. So what do I come to? It comes to my instincts. And Amen. like one of the, one of those was like when the masks went up, like my whole body said no. To sending my kids to like be in mask land all day, like that was such a hard no that, and I can dress up that no in all kinds of reasons and justifications. But if I said I oppose masking children in school because it doesn't actually trans stop transmission because that, I mean, I can name all the reasons, but that's not why, Paul. Those are rationalizations for what was uh, like just an instinctual body level. No way am I sending my kid into that environment. Strong enough that we, you know, started our own little school. Yeah. Like off the grid, um, unaccredited, you know, like a little homeschool co-op. Many people did. And many people still have their kids doing exactly that. We were lucky because we send the kids to a Steiner school. And of all the Steiner schools in the whole region, the only one that was faced with California's mask restrictions, which required that you either be outside completely without masks, but if you're indoors, you have to wear them. This, this school that we send our kids to moved the entire school outside, rain or shine, cold or hot. And, and my, my little boy, Mana, he, he actually loved it. He had no problems at all. You know, we're always outside around here anyhow. So, um, I was fortunate that we were able to keep the kids in school. Um, but I watched a lot of people suffer not having that option. And, you know, many of my friends hired tutors or some Steiner schools will sell you a kit that you can use, which is the syllabus mm -hmm. that the teachers use. So you can follow. We bought that as well to use with our nannies, which are also teachers for the kids. So on their days off, we're still using the arts, the crafts, the basic model just to keep them, you know, using their free time as valuable time. But, you know, it is a very deep uh, issue and, and I, I, I'm just with you and, and I, I would love to hear what your internal process revealed about that mask issue beside the science. Yeah. I certainly have my opinions, but I want to hear yours. Ultimately, it came down to what our society values and what I value. If you uphold death avoidance called safety, called security, called saving lives, which is a misnomer, like ultimately there's only death postponement. There's never saving lives. Everyone's going to die. So like life extension as long as possible, the preservation of your separate self as long as possible, if that is the highest value, then maybe masking is justified. A small inconvenience for this one overarching goal. Maybe lockdowns are justified. Maybe social distancing is justified. Maybe we should stay in our bubbles all the time from now on. And as Fauci recommended, 
never shake hands or hug anybody ever again. Jesus. Because you will be safer that way, maybe. Okay, actually, you and I both know that you probably won't be. That whatever marginal decrease in transmission of some disease that might kill you, especially if you're over 80 years old, is offset by the degradation of long-term health caused by, you know, not enough uh, intercourse with the natural environment and a depleted microbiome and autoimmunity and depression and addiction and all the things that come from loneliness. Social and, isolation. Yeah. Okay. But even, but let's, let's pretend that it doesn't even exist. And we'll say, yes, it will reduce death if we stay in our bubbles, mask up and, and, uh, you know, never sing together and never dance together ever again. Well, if you hold as valuable something else besides risk minimization, then you still might say, hey, you know what? I accept that risk because I want to live fully because I value hugs, because I value singing together, because I value touch because I value cuddle puddles, because I value sitting in a circle and seeing each other's faces. And it's worth a little extra risk for me. Amen. There's a saying I teach all of my students. The pain is seldom where the actual problem is. For example, I've seen many cases of rotator cuff problems that wouldn't heal even after surgery. But what most doctors and therapists overlook is that the right shoulder is under influence from the liver and the left shoulder the stomach. Once we apply the principles of detoxification, support digestion, and clear parasites, presto, shoulders start healing and working beautifully again. If you learn to see people holistically, like I teach my students in Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 1, you begin to see the true source of our illnesses and injuries. HLC1 teaches you many essential approaches to health and well-being, such as how to assess what key body systems are under too much stress and how to restore balance, the importance of identifying a realistic dream goal or objective that inspires each individual to stick to their healing program and make the short and long-term changes that are necessary, my universally applicable 1-2-3-4 formula for assessing and correcting challenges, how to breathe optimally to enhance energy levels and mental clarity, how to use gentle movements to work in and enhance life force energy and support optimal immune function. How the function and health of the soil that food is grown in influences all systems of the body, including our mental emotional stability and much more. HLC1 is just a small part of what we teach our Czech Academy students, our education system for elite trainers and health professionals. Gavin Jennings and I designed the academy to take you from wherever you are right now, even if you have no fitness or health education, to being one of the best holistic health and performance professionals on this planet. And as a Czech Academy student, you'll be able to help a lot of people reach their health goals in ways you never imagined. There is, in my opinion, nothing more rewarding and meaningful in life than helping other people look, feel, and live better. We are now accepting applications into the Czech Academy, so whether you're wanting to change your career or add a truly effective new dimension to your current skill set, now is the time to apply. Go to chekinstitute.com forward slash L number 4D Academy. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash L4D Academy. Let's make the world a better place together. I'm sure everybody listening to this 
sometimes does something that's a little risky in order to live life fully and to experience joy. Like, for example, driving somewhere, <laughs> like where you could stay in your house that night, but there's, you know, uh, a concert. Like everybody takes risks. Like we're not here to survive life. Then the question comes up, okay, Charles, but you have no right to make that decision for other people and to endanger them by going maskless or going to gatherings and and that could possibly be a super spreader event. And then so I asked the question, I think I even asked this in the coronation, like right at the beginning, I said, suppose it it's you and in order to save your life, let's not even talk to minimize your risk, to save your life, Paul, would you decree that no one else on earth can ever hug again? Hell no, I'd rather die Hell hugging. No. Hell no. Well, most people would say, hell no. If that's the case, then why are we collectively making a decision to sacrifice all of the sociality and physicality for some, you know, epidemiological risk curve reason? That's without even a conversation. Like, okay, maybe other people don't share my values. Maybe some people think that extending life as long as possible is very important to them, more important than uh, a choir or a dance party. But let's at least have that conversation. Let's not take for granted the the the, the public health goal of of uh, you know life prolongation uh, without incorporating other values into the conversation. And this gets to like other issues about how we as a society make decisions. Um, that speaks a lot to what you were saying about like the psychopaths in power, because that's not, in my mind, the fundamental explanation for what happened and why it happened. As long as, and maybe, maybe I'll go into that more later, but um, we have, whether or not the people in power are psychopathic, we have to ask, why are we so vulnerable to their manipulation? And that is a function of these unconscious tacit beliefs that we just take for granted with even if we don't on a soul level resonate with them and one of those is that the way to make decisions is to measure something do a cost benefit analysis a risk assessment and what's easy to measure De mortality rate is easy to measure what's hard to measure life satisfaction mm -hmm. uh, thriving um, yeah. Yeah. So the problem is, is that the, the, the so-called scientific method of any risk assessment is 100% based on objectivity or they don't call it science. Right. But to give you an example, I've had scientists, hardened scientists in lectures that I've given that have raised their hand when I'm talking about, you know, nature spirits or about, um, anything spiritual or about chakras and they go, you know, this is all bullshit. None of this is scientifically proven. <clears throat> I say, well, first of all, you're wrong. But second of all, there's a bigger issue. I say, so what you're telling me is if you can't weigh it and measure it, then it doesn't, it's not real. And they every time say yes. And I have one question for those people. Do you love your wife? Do you have children that you love? Do you have people that you love? They all say yes. I go, 
how do you quantify that and how important is that to you? And isn't it interesting that you cannot weigh and measure it, but it's probably the most important thing in your life. And that causes a long, quiet pause of repose. But, you know, Arthur M. Young, you know who Arthur M. Young was? No. He was the inventor of the Bell helicopter. He took his money and devoted it to the study of consciousness, created his own institute, wrote some excellent books on consciousness. He shows a cross, and in the horizontal cross, he relates to the objective realm, the way are weighable and measurable, but the vertical cross he orients to the subjective realm, and he shows that it's very easy in the Milu that we're in to orient your whole psychological self to the objective arm of the cross, but completely ignore the subjective vertical beam of the cross. And so I think this is where intuition comes from. I think instincts are a mix of subject and object because they're coming from our bodily um, intelligence, the intelligence, you know, what would classically be called the subconscious mind, the wisdom of the body, the DNA, the cells, and we've also got the kind of intuitive instincts that, you know, like you and I both sense trouble, right? That, that wasn't something we made and measured, but we intuitively knew something was going on. But that's the subjective arm of the cross, the vertical beam. So I think one of the things that I saw happening is that as the pressure started to mount, People left their subjective values and jumped onto the objective arm of the cross. And then you had, you know, yogis and lifetime health gurus all of a sudden getting vaccinated. You had leaders like we talked about, people that I never dreamed would go against their own teachings and everything that they'd stood for all of a sudden turned into controllable little robots running to get lined up. And, and, you know, my, my mother and father raised us very holistically. My mother was a Christian scientist going to doctors was almost illegal in that religion. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing my whole family is with just the, with rare exceptions are attacking me because they say I'm misleading people. I'm going to get people killed. And I'm like, what the hell happened? Where, where did the family I was raised in go? I mean, so this this kind of situation, as you well know, created a bomb from the family unit all the way to the top. Yeah, it ripped apart families. It ripped apart like psychedelic communities. It ripped apart yoga communities. It ripped apart intentional communities, eco villages. Um, it was incredibly destructive. Don't you think it was designed that way? Nope. You don't. I think that. I think that. Um, fascistic and controlling forces opportunistically used it to further their own ends. Uh, but the pattern that we're seeing is very ancient. And this is the, um, this is what really got me in trouble actually when I spoke out because, so I wrote an article called mob morality and the unvaxxed. And it was part of a five essay series that investigated a pattern described by a philosopher named René Girard called sacrificial violence. So I'll run, you, I'll run you through it real quick, okay? Yeah. So ancient societies, the biggest threat facing them was revenge. 
was reciprocal violence. Somebody insults somebody else and they take revenge and it escalates. And pretty soon you have a blood feud mm-hmm. and there is no middle ground. If you're not on my side, you're on their side. If I see you with them, then you must be with them. Which side are you on? Tell me right now or I'll kill you, right? And this would just rip apart societies. The solution that they found was to turn all of the vengeance and all of the bloodlust onto a victim. And everybody would unite and murder that victim. Or it could be a subclass. A scapegoat. That's right. And when they did that, because the original conflict was this self-created thing, this escalating thing, it wasn't necessarily based on anything real. So you you um, uh, discharge the the bloodlust and that feeling of being wronged and all that. You discharge it on the victim, and then peace reigns, harmony is restored. Therefore, the mind says, "Well, if killing the victim." solved the problem, then the victim must have been the cause of the problem. So it generates all kinds of myths and legends of the supervillain, the bad guy. The next step was to preemptively start sacrificing victims in order to prevent civil discord. So So some societies developed various festivals that would replicate the breakdown of order. And festivals are still like that. Ordinary rules of conduct and taboos are suspended for the duration of a festival. What's the festival? I think it's in maybe the Netherlands or Switzerland, where they have uh, several days where you can you can just go crazy. You dress yep. up crazy. You masturbate in the street, have sex, do crazy shit for that very reason. Exactly. All over I the world. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Well... Yeah, I mean, we still have carnival, you know, like things like that, uh, Mardi Gras, um, um, music festivals, transformational festivals. Like there's some element, like people dress funny, you know, it's like a, a, a non-ordinary social space. Traditionally, though, like in ancient societies, the festival would culminate in a ritual sacrifice, like an actual blood sacrifice. Sometimes it would be of a temporary king of the festival, uh, who during the festival would be encouraged to perform all kinds of deranged, degenerate acts. Okay. And then, okay, so so that would preempt the uh, reciprocal violence. So the, 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 the people chosen to be the victims were people that were they couldn't be fully of society because that would start the cycle of vengeance. They had to be some dehumanized subclass, which could be so. So, okay. Um, in some instances, it would even be the king uh, because he was not part of society because he was kind of above society. And in some societies, again, the king would be encouraged or even required to break sacred taboos. Like he would you know, marry his sister. Uh, or just perform all kinds of heinous actions, which would concentrate evil in his person, which could then be removed through the ritual sacrifice. And that that person, because I've studied a lot of these rituals myself, that person was also considered a hero. Yeah, it could be. The person that took that responsibility on to be that sacrificial lamb, so to speak, and, and at least from my studies, 
was actually venerated and they go into it knowing they're going to die. But it's really like you're, you're to use a, 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 the only term that pops into my head, you are the medicine to create the sustainability and stability in the society. Therefore, you are sacrificing yourself for a very, very high cause. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, um, that may have been true in some societies, but usually the, the whole concept of an arch-villain derives from this phenomenon. So, like we have, like, I mean, we saw it in the French Revolution, for example, uh, the sacrifice of the elites in this orgy of bloodlust. Um, you saw it in the witch hunts. You saw it in the pogroms against the Jews and in the Holocaust. So this is where my point about where fascistic powers take advantage of this very ancient phenomenon, and they direct the rage of the mob towards a them, an other, that thereby defines the fascist us. So during COVID, this is what started to happen, where, a, where the dehumanized subclass was the anti-vaxxers, or even the unvaccinated, who are associated with contagion. Like during the witch hunts, if you were friends with someone who was accused of a witch, then you would be tainted with that. Or like in grade school, if the class decides someone has cooties, mm-hmm. then if you touch them, then you've got cooties too. Yep, the untouchables. And, and the best way to protect yourself is to join the bullies. And abuse the so this is exactly what was happening during COVID. And that pattern alarmed me. You know, as somebody who's part Jewish, like, I mean, I've got I know I've got family stories, you know. My grandfather escaped a murderous mob by hiding in a haystack. Like, this is for real. Like, I was seriously alarmed because because once that um division of society into the sanctified brethren and the heretics is established, then there's almost no limit uh, to what you can do to the heretics, to what you can do to the unclean, to the, to the untermenschen. And we saw like on Twitter, I mean, like, and in the media, like, like inhuman proposals of what to do with the unvaccinated. Oh yeah. And I was like encouraged People are like, hey, you've had Kelly Brogan on your podcast. You've had Sayer G, you know, like, um, I'd like, I want you to distance yourself from these people as <laughs> if they had cooties in the class. And, and that's why when I published the mob morality piece, I'm like, I, I, I you know, identified that phenomenon. And I said, and then I, I just like, it was like swearing in public, you know, I was like, like, you know, Dr. Mercola, Link, you know, Kelly Brogan, Link, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., you know, I'm like, I was kind of um, flouting the, the, the pattern. And predictably enough that, um, you know, I was accused of all kinds of horrible things and put into the class of the sacrificial victim for removal from society. That's called cancellation and deplatforming. Um, we didn't get to the point of concentration camps and murder. It all happened mostly in a virtual space. Um, but that was the pattern. Okay, so my point here, long, long-winded, it's that if we locate the source of what happened in Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, Klaus Schwab, and so forth, we're missing this whole phenomenon. 
we're missing our culture's phobia of death that makes us susceptible to appeals to security and safety. I mean, it's not just disease. It's, you know, the war on terror. It's all kinds of things. Um, we miss the cult of quantity that only validates the things that we can measure as real, like you said. Um, like we miss all that. And instead, we diagnose the problem as a certain pathogen. It's actually a mirror of the germ theory of disease that always is looking for something to kill. And I like to look at the terrain. It's not like I don't believe in germs and viruses, but I don't think that's the primary explanation for illness. You have to ask, well, why are they infecting me? And, and, and you know, what, what, what's, what's the terrain? So the same thing with the social terrain. What is the terrain that allows these technocrats and psychopaths to have any power at all? It's not like they have bigger muscles, certainly not than you, maybe bigger than me, but, you know, it's not like they have superpowers, you know? Why are they powerful? That's the terrain. That's the psychic climate. That's these received myths and narratives and belief systems and an old consciousness that we are now working to transform. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate everything you're saying. Um, <laughs> I think my response to that is that when you're dealing with people like Bill Gates, the Rockefeller Foundation, Soros, I mean, certainly you've either read or seen the documentary, um, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. I mean, she documents exactly how they've been doing this for a very long time. They have it right down to a formula. And they know these people have not only the most advanced information gathering systems in the world, but it's well known that they have many people with some of the highest IQs ever recorded working in their service. And they have the capability and the knowledge and research to use everything you've just said as a weapon. And, you know, as a soldier, I know exactly how brainwashing's done. I lived through it. I saw all the signs. I'm like, oh God, this is just a psychological basic training program is all this is. My point is, is one of the compounding issues of what we're going through is there's so many things that can be true at once, it's really hard to juggle that many chainsaws, let alone balls, right? And I, I think that, you know, it, 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 society already had lots of problems before COVID. I mean, we had, I mean, I won't list them all. You know what I'm talking about from environmental to political to toxicity to whatever your beliefs on global warming are. I mean, the list is freaking long. Banking system, medical system, legal system, like off the chart. I, I, I often say to my students, you realize you should really enjoy every day because it's a fucking miracle that we have not collapsed nature or had a third world war yet or something terrible. So, you know, every day get up and just really live fully because we're at the point now where there's so many X factors the ice is so thin. And point being is, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I'm just simply saying it, it's part of the problem is, is there's so many complex issues and you brought one of them up. You study Joe Mercola, the big 12, and then you go study their opponents and you got equally qualified people with diametrically opposed views. And I tell my students, look, 
If you research cold water therapies, you will find highly educated, qualified people that will tell you it's bad for you, you should never do it. And you'll find all sorts of people equally qualified that will list all the benefits. And you can find that in everything you research. So I speak to them of Steiner's model of the soul. And Steiner describes that the indication that your intellectual soul is coming online is that you begin to question your own beliefs. And when you start questioning your own beliefs and the beliefs of others and looking into it for yourself to make your own decisions, that's when your intellectual soul is authentically developing. And personally, I think humanity is still at the level psychologically as a whole of a child. And we're just now kind of waking up to the fact that we do have to think for ourselves and we do have to pay attention or other people will guide direct and profit from our lives. And so I think that the conundrum that you were in and the conundrum that I've been in and the conundrum I've been in for my entire career, because people come to me all the time with every kind of health issue and crisis that have been through the medical system and nothing's helping. And I have to say, okay, we've, we've got to look somewhere else. You obviously don't need more parts cut out. You don't need more vitamins. You don't need more injections. There's something deeper going on here. And I think that's one of the gifts of all this. We've all got an opportunity to really sit and say, what's the deeper thing going on? And I, I really think that in a sense, we're in an initiation process or a mythical transition or both that's forcing us to stand up for ourselves as individuals and stop listening to what other people say beyond reasonable measure and say, is it really true? Is it true for me? And what's the evidence of my life saying? And ultimately, at the end of the day, what am I willing to die for? Because what you're willing to die for is what you're willing to live for. Yeah, beautifully put. Hi, you guys. I know you all know that super green powders are good for you if they're made from organic sources and they're processed properly. So the nutrients are there. And that's exactly what Paleo Valley does with their super greens powder. So I brought Autumn Smith in to tell us exactly how she created it and why and what it's going to do for you when you try their amazing organic super greens powder. Autumn, what is the magic you've got here? Well, like you said, we all need to get more of those micronutrients that you find in fresh fruits and vegetables. And so we've created a powder that you do not have to choke down. It has an absolutely delicious berry lemonade flavor. And the reason that it's different is because A, it is all organic, 23 organic superfood ingredients. And B, it is a very, very gut-friendly product because what I've found in my practice is that a lot of people don't do well with cereal grasses. And we know cereal grasses, like wheatgrass, can contain lectins that can be hard on the guts of a lot of people I work with. And so what we did was we created a a cereal grass-free alternative. We use high quality, the cleanest, highest quality spirulina on the market, raised in India. And then we added the 22 other organic fresh fruits and vegetables, and the flavor will surprise you. So all you have to do to check it out is go ahead to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15, that's lowercase C-H-E-K-15, at checkout. My son drinks it every day. We call it his ninja juice, and I sincerely hope your family loves it as much as ours does. All right, everybody. Go paleo green and get rocking. Hope you love it.
the overarching theme of all my work for the last 20 years has been a mythological transition. Amen. By which it I mean a transition, a transition in our mythology. So I don't think that we can understand what happened during COVID without going to the level of mythology, by which I mean the stories that answer the deep questions that we ask. Yes. And, and you know, most people are clueless as to what mythology really is or even what a myth is. In fact, as you surely know, most people this day and age think a myth means a lie. Right. But, you know, I interviewed, you know who James Cars is? He, uh, wrote no. the, he wrote the book Finite and Infinite Games, which oh, is yes, yes. extremely yeah. good. Yeah. He wrote the book A Case Against Religious Belief and several other books. I interviewed him right before he died. In fact, I had his last interview. And he was a very skilled, deep mythologist. And some of the definitions that he gave for myth are profound. I want to share them with you. One, a myth is a story that tells itself. Now, that's worth a sit under a very tall tree for a while. Next, a myth is something that never happened, but is happening all the time. Now, those two definitions of myth require somebody who can use their heart and their head and their intuition and their instincts to full capacity to try to grapple it. And I think we're, like you say, in the middle of a significant mythological transition. And whenever there's a mythological transition, there's a myth, the prevailing myth and a counter myth. And there's almost always wars, death, and destruction as the two digest each other. And then finally, something that is a marriage of the two, but transcends the previous comes out. <laughs> and the question is, can we make through make it through the transition? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that that is uh food for thought. I would add maybe a third attribute of myth, which is that. It's a vehicle for truth independent of its objective factuality. I would agree 100%. Yeah. I was just giving you a couple of them, but, you know, it, myth is very deep is what I'm saying. But the problem is, is that we don't have many people on the planet that have the meditative or philosophical discipline to grapple with the reality of what myth is and how it's playing through them all the time. Right. Well, I th and I think that among those people who do not have the intellectual capacity to do that are people like Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab. They are not the engineers of myths. They are the puppets of myths. And if we want to create a world that is different from the way that they envision it, we have to operate from a different mythology and understand the psychodynamics and social dynamics of myth. So one of the myths that makes all of the COVID stuff and all of the mRNA technology, all that stuff, it makes it um, like acceptable and inevitable is the myth of progress equals control. And human death, like a myth says, where do we come from and where are we going? The prevailing myth says that we started out as primitive, superstitious animals and barely and struggled to survive. from a chemical soup. <laughs> that emerged from a chemical soup randomly 
And, and that progress means taking control of the randomness and imposing intelligence onto a world that has none. And that our destiny is to complete this control to become the lords and masters of creation. If you take that myth for granted, unconsciously, then any invention that increases our ability to control reality, to control the genes, to control the cells, to, to, to control the brain, to put neuro uh, silicon links in there, you know, to surveil every human being at all times, to monitor every transaction, that's progress because you are bringing order to chaos. You are bringing intelligence onto the wild. You're domesticating the world. If that myth is in place, then of course you want eugenics because we're going we're gonna to transition from the messy, random process of genetic mixing, you know, towards something um, intentional. Like all, like all the, the, the transhuman agenda, it makes sense in the context of that myth. But I think you're right. Like a lot of people now no longer feel at home in that myth. Because for one thing, it hasn't borne its promised utopia. Like, I mean, you're even a few years older than I am. I mean, you remember like in the 70s, what the future was supposed to be like. It was supposed to be awesome. You know, we were supposed yeah. to have, I have no J. disease. I remember, I remember the, the, the moonwalk and how yeah. it opened us up to the sense of freedom and that we were, were actually accomplishing something, you know? Right. We don't have that anymore. No one, no one really believes it. Maybe very, very few believe that we're actually still progressing and that life is getting better and better and that everything is awesome. Like we don't have that, that faith in our myths anymore. Instead, we have a breakdown of the reality that it narrated. And we have, we have people like, like the psychedelic revolution is having a profound impact. Thank God. And, and like there are people who are deeply ensconced in um, the high echelons of, cor- of the corporate world, of the military, of politics, billionaires, CEOs, like generals, congresspeople, you know, senators who are sitting in ayahuasca circles. And like, like I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I know this through, you know, firsthand reports. Like I know it too. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and thank then the they Lord. Go, and they go back. They go back to their reality, to their office, you know, to their reinforcing circumstances. And the first thing that they feel is helpless because it is now and, and, and alienated because that environment and the possibilities that it offers cannot contain what they have seen and experienced and who they want to become. You cannot and that put brings, spirit in a box. Yeah. And that brings crisis and breakdown that's now being reflected in all of our system, systemic breakdown. And that is propelling us. I call that the space between stories. It's similar to what you were referencing in this process of mythical transition when you just don't know anymore. Yes. What, what, what came to my mind as you were talking about this need to control, which as many experts have stated in psychoanalysis of Gates, Soros, and others, is that there's a deep fear inside of them that's driving them, and that the need to control is really an expression or a compensation for the fear. 
But this whole control drama brings up a quote that I don't know who the author is, but it's probably one you've heard. If you want to make God laugh, tell him you got a plan. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very true right now. And I think personally, I'd like to hear your comment on this. I think that a lot of their strategy backfired on them because we used their the same technology they're trying to use to control us. We were able to use to communicate and to educate and to awaken enough people that it just didn't go nearly as easy as they thought it would. Yeah. And that's because the ideology of control contains an illusion. Like reality is not as controllable as we like to think. There's always unintended consequences. And the, the, this like paradise of control that always seems just one or two more inventions away. It's like always on the horizon. It's actually a mirage. The faster you run toward it, the faster it recedes. And so the people in power, they, they have, they haven't understood this yet. And they're like, if only we can, you know, complete the data set. <laughs> like and get you know make an internet of things and and like we'll we'll finally have everything under control and their motivation is very idealistic you know we are going to engineer crime out of existence we're going to engineer suffering out of existence anytime you start suffering the the implant that monitors your physiology will send a signal and and release another implant to put more serotonin into your brain and then you won't be, you won't suffer anymore. Like this is the one aspect of the vision of the paradise of total control. But as you know, the closer we get to it, the worse things get, you yes. know, like, and, and when you face the failure of control, you have a choice every time the choice is either you double down and you say it didn't work because we don't have enough of it. Or you question the foundation and you let go. There's no guarantee that any person or any society will choose one way or another. The failure of our technology will not save us, but it does provide us a choice. And you and I are here to illuminate that choice and to set an example and, and, and establish the field of the choice that we want to see in the world. You know, you said something very interesting. You talked about how they're trying to eliminate crime and, and essentially guarantee that everybody's healthy. Did I hear you correctly? Yeah. I mean, they think it's going to be great, you know, the paradise of control. Okay. Here's the paradox of that. They used crime and created ill health in attempt to implement that strategy. So if the motive of an individual to create peace comes by way of crime and the creation of ill health, it's already doomed to fail. It begins on the guillotine. Well, those are you know temporary sacrifices that we must make. Well, there's lots of temporary sacrifices that we must make. One of them is to learn to think for ourselves and pay attention to what really works and what history has shown us. For example, anybody that knows anything about health, as soon as they heard stay indoors, stay out of the sunshine, mask yourself, this goes against everything we've learned about how to be healthy for as long as human beings have been on the planet. And it 
And a lot of it goes beyond science because science has fucked a lot of shit up. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't saying that in earnest. I'm saying that, 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 that the way that they think of it is that we might have to make some temporary sacrifices. Oh, I, I know that. Yeah. I, I understand. Yeah. I'm just looking, I'm flipping the philosophical coin on the whole concept and saying the very things that they're promoting, you'll own nothing and be happy. I say, good, let me, sh let me see you do it first so we're sure it works. That's a good idea. I mean, the 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 uh, ancient Christian fathers did that. You know, some of the uh, like the in the like second and third century, some of these uh, some some of them were extremely wealthy and they gave it all away. Yes, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask that of Bill Gates either. That would be inspiring if he said, you know, I'm not even going to keep a million dollars for myself. Yeah. I think I think that would be a good litmus test. If they really believe in their philosophy that much, then demonstrate it. Talk's cheap, baby. You know, you, at the very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned, you know, communism. And uh, I thought, I'm actually a communist. Not, as, not that I believe that that is something that should be imposed by force, but that when we ultimately realize the true nature of the self, as we realize that we are inter-beings, that anything that happens in the world happens to me, that every relationship and everything I judge is a reflection of something in myself, as the health of the soil is my health, and the health of the Amazon is my health, and the well-being of human beings everywhere is my well-being, then we naturally, without having it to be imposed, enter more and more into generosity, more and more into sharing, less and less hoarding, less and less desire to control. And communism, or something that looks very much like it, arises as a side effect. Yeah, I think instead of the term communism because of the political charge, I would say you're describing being a communalist, the community, right? Yeah. Not, not the communist political agenda, because the last thing I want is someone to hear this podcast and come arrest you. Um, <sighs> Right. But what, what, what you're talking about is really what Jung calls self-realization or what Yogananda called self-realization. And Jung def one of Jung's many definitions of the self is everything that supports you from your family to the resources of the world. And he, he and Edward Edinger talked about how when the ego gets too far from the self is when shit really bad starts to happen, both personally and within a family structure or in the relationships of that person. And when we look at this, if we look at the mindset of the Nuval Hararis and the Klaus Schwabs and the Gateses, they really have this idea that they are going to hack the gene, that the soul is an old outdated idea, get rid of this God thing. We can control it. That's, that's the ego that's so far above the self. It doesn't realize it's literally killing itself. And ultimately, the only saving grace is a return to the self, an embrace by the self, because somebody that's in that state cannot ultimately become healthy in isolation. They have to be embraced by the self. And it brings up, you know, in my studies of various cultures and societies, I came across the writings of uh, writings about 
a group of people like a tribe in India, and they were very unusual. They lived on an island, and they carried these ideals with them. And in that tribe, they never punished people that had done things wrong, like stealing or having sex with someone else's wife. They would put them in a chair, and then the whole community would make a circle around them, and each person would say something they really love about that person to them. And that they had the lowest crime rates of any society ever studied. They had the lowest amount of violence. And it really goes to my point is, is that it took the self, the larger self of the broken individual to bring that person into awareness that they're part of something bigger than just their immediate ego needs or, or, or need for instant gratification or whatever. And that they are valued by the whole. And I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that approach. I mean, certainly, you know, that might not work with hardened killers and people like that. But I think, you know, when you look at how a block, a, a flock of birds flies or how ants and bees work together, it's really more along the, the kind of the Buddhist notion of the self or, um, more along the lines of what I feel you're leaning toward with, with the, communalism or communism concept, but done in a, in a healthy way. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I wouldn't actually call myself a communist because I'm aware of the, you know, political associations with it, but it's, um, it's an interesting way to kind of turn that on its head to, you know, to, to say that it's a, a result and not an ism. I just want to say one more thing about, you know, the self. I mean, this can get like really abstract, but I think that that is the core of the mythology transition. The old self being separate, um, a Cartesian self, you know, yeah. a skin encapsulated ego, or even a soul encased in flesh. And then the next self is relational, like fundamentally relational. Yes. Yeah. And I look what it's done though. I mean, you know, I watched as people all over the world celebrated the Canadian truckers movement. You know, we've all had empathy for people in Australia, um, places like Germany, um, wherever people were getting locked down and, and losing their freedoms. I felt the whole world grieving for them, you know? And so I think we're in really um, a spiritual awakening process on a very deep level. And, I think the beauty of it is, is sometimes it takes a, a, a devil to, to, to put you in a situation where you've got to find the next level of yourself. So I think in a lot of ways, it's easy to point fingers at people like Bill Gates and all the people I've been mentioning that we both know about. But in actuality, they may be, they may be the, one's lighting the match of the transition that we wouldn't have entered into unless we were pushed into it because we were too comfortable watching TV, playing with iPhones and eating junk food. And I yeah. think that maybe there is a, a sort of a strange and wonderful madness that ultimately leads to a higher level of sanity. If we can navigate this together, <laughs> did you want to say something else? I could say many things about that. I was just uh, leaning into my my uh, 
my practice, <laughs> which uh, I got the acronym from a friend, Gigi Coyle. Um, she calls it WAIT, W-A-I-T. Stands for Why Am I Talking? And so I had some things I could say, but I'm like, hold on a second. What does it really serve in this moment? You know, I don't, I'm not here to uh, impress you or to sound smart. So We're I was here to share, some, baby. Yeah. I'm taking some time to feel into where the conversation could go, you know, and I just have this feeling that there's some new level of it that could happen. Um, so I wanted to give some space to, to, to move into that. Excellent. P3OM by Bioptimizers is hands down one of the most important supplements to have on you everywhere you go. If you're traveling, if you go to work, if you're going to friend's house to eat, this product will knock out food poisoning and almost any kind of gut disorder from viruses, bacteria, fungi, whatever could irritate your gut so quickly. It's mind-blowing. I have been using this product since Wade Lightheart first turned me on to it, and he's the formulator of it. And I've got Wade here to tell us how it works, but I just want you to hear it from me. I have all my clients use this. I try to get it to friends, to family members, because it is really like your own bodyguard. So Wade, how in the world does this thing work so well every time? Well, as you know, we're very research oriented and we have literally a university in Croatia that we do microbiome testing with our labs of PhDs to find out what's the most effective formulation. And we are quickly moving into the post-antibiotic world where we need to cultivate super probiotics. We all heard of super bad bacteria in hospitals and stuff that are antibiotic resistance. But what we did, we worked with a medical doctor that was able to take an aggressive strain of L. plantarum, which is a very aggressive strain, and then put it through almost like a BUDS camp, a Navy SEALs training, where we subjected this particular probiotic to a toxic environment. We ran a sine wave through it. And out of that survived only about somewhere between two and 3%. We then take that and grow it on very special food. We feed them just like you would feed a great athlete. You feed them special food and the probiotics develop unique capabilities. We have a U.S. patent that is so powerful. I can't read it on the airwaves because we'd get canceled. But what I can say is when you put P3OM in your body, it goes out and breaks down any undigested protein whether it's in your gut or through your blood system. And it becomes your Navy SEALs defense force, if you will, to go out and wipe out whatever pathogen might come in your body. You just need more of these guys to overwhelm it. It takes it out. It cleans up any messes. And for the last 18 years, I've been using P3OM daily. And I can honestly say I've never been sick during that time. If I feel something coming on, I just double down my dosage take four caps every night. If I get a little, if I'm traveling, I take twice that. And it's been great. A lot of our people do it. And it's one of our best selling products. And it's available to your audience. Just go to p3om.com slash living 40, put in Paul 10, get a 10% discount. And if it's not the best probiotic you've ever had in your life, you get 100% of your money back. That's from us at Bioptimizers. That's our guarantee for you. Go get it. It's for real. I love the stuff. Thank you, Wade. Charles, you know, I really appreciate 
everything you're sharing. Before we move on, is there any thoughts that you'd like to share? If there's one thing that COVID has shown us, it's that the world was already falling apart. Because if it weren't, we wouldn't have gone through all this COVID stuff. I mean, if we were a healthy society, we would not have responded this way. So it kind of revealed things that were otherwise hidden. And it showed us where we were going. Like it showed us the the techno techno totalitarian hellscape that is our future if we don't change course. And therefore, it gives us the choice to change course. It does. It's hard to change course when when you're not even aware of where you're going. Right. That's why they say if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Um, but you know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I feel that what COVID's done is brought the the shadow of the collective unconscious right up where everybody can see it. And even, you know, a lot of the things that now a lot of people are realizing are really going on used to be labeled as conspiracy theories, but now it's in their face, you know. You know, I could list 50 things in a row to point that out, but I think, you know, you... Things are called unconscious because you're unconscious of them. And when you do personal shadow work, you have to look at where your judgments are. You have to look at the excuses you're making. You know, there's a lot of things that are very uncomfortable to look at. And that's why a lot of people don't do that kind of work because they just don't want to look at it. But I think we're at a point now where it's all brought us into a lot of introspection. And I've seen a lot of people that started off as staunch vaccinators and holding the line. And I want to kill the unvaccinated. They're dangerous to really actually waking up to, oh my God, here I am vaccinated and sick because of it. And I made a big mistake and, and everything that I thought was true is not true. And now they're starting to really look into things. And I think if, if there's some medicine emerging, I think just that alone is a really important form of medicine. Yeah, that's the initiatory dimension of COVID, but also just crisis in general. It, it, the, the story that you'd been in, the reality that you'd lived in isn't working anymore. And that's a perfect lead into my next question. Uh, Charles, I often tell my students, we don't see reality as it is, but we see it as we are. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you feel reality is and how far we've wandered as human beings from the reality that we need to engage if we are to find harmony with each other and the planet before the crisis gets bigger than we can recover from. Yeah. We don't see reality as it is. We see reality as we are. Which isn't to say that there is no reality outside of ourselves. No. Nor is, nor is it to say that we create our reality, but it does speak to an intimate and mysterious connection between self and reality, between inner and outer. Yes, and it's also, I think, heavily linked to the, you know, Jung spoke of the imaginal faculty as that which perceives. The imaginal is different than the imaginary. The imaginary is making shit up like imagining that you're 10 feet tall when you're five foot eight, that's imaginary. But the imaginal faculty is how you sense the, the energy of a plant or a tree or 
uh, you how you interpret what somebody is saying to you, which could be radically different in intention than they actually intended. So there you, you, you don't perceive always their reality and their intention you perceive through your own filters. Right. This, this brings up a, this just popped into my mind. I, uh, a woman I know uh, a year ago, her mother passed and I knew her mother pretty well, you know, and I didn't know her that well. In fact, barely at all. But um, I reached out in sympathy and, and I said, you know, my mother passed too recently and I was really close to her. And, you know, I just said some I'm really I'm sorry for your loss and so forth. And she responded really angrily because she thought that I was implying that she wasn't close to her mother oh. by me saying I was close to my mother. Right. And and that that's like such a perfect example of how we like she's seeing a reality that is in some way a reflection of her own psychology, her own wounds, her own traumas. And, and it's an example of, of the power of the stories that we live in that go all the way to the level of mythology, but include all of our personal stories as well that make a kind of a filter that, that uh, distort things to conform to the image of the story or the belief system that filter some things out that, and that preserve that story. And we see this on an institutional level where like this happened during COVID where, where any data point that didn't fit the narrative would be filtered out in like this institutional or collective version of the, the paradigm protection of a story. Like, you know, it would get labeled as false information. It would get censored mm -hmm. or even if it was like a scientific paper, if it was counter narrative, it would be subjected to intense scrutiny. Whereas if something were conforming to the narrative, it would pass with almost no scrutiny at all. So, so all of these things together created an apparent reality in the image of who we are. Because a story isn't just an isolated intellectual construct. It's part of a state of being that we find home in, co-resonate somehow with our the state of the soul. And that's why it's so hard to persuade somebody or to convince them of a new belief. Because you're not, it's not just intellectual. You can't reason somebody out of a position they didn't reason themselves into to begin with. But when there's a deeper change that happens, that comes through what you were talking about, like the breakdown, like you got the jabs, you know, you're supposed to be healthy now. I did everything I was told. I was scientific. And now I've got, you know, some chronic condition that started right after the jab. And the doctors told me it's unrelated. And, I, and, and this isn't working for me anymore. I don't know if there's any other way, actually, to change besides through this process of breakdown and humiliation. I mean, when I when I change like a, a deep belief about something, it's usually not some intellectual journey. It's usually like something happened and man, like life just stopped working. Then I change. For me, it's the spirit of exploration. You know, I I tell my students and it's my personal motto, any any belief worth living is worth challenging. 
And so I've made a habit. I love debates when I was in school and I've always loved debating. And my favorite part of the debate class is when you had to switch sides and take the other side with just as much honesty and commitment, which very few people can do. And because I've traveled the world lecturing all over the place and everything from medical schools and physical therapy schools and chiropractic schools, you name it. And I always used to sit before I would go into some of these bigger conferences because I knew that what I was saying was going to get attacked. And I would take the opposite side and debate myself. And if I could find a hole in my own debate, then I would say, okay, I've got to really address that because I need to look there myself. I don't need somebody else to find it for me in front of a thousand people. I got to find it myself. So there's two points I'm making. One, I believe that beliefs can be changed if one has a genuine spirit of exploration and a true interest in the truth. And the other one is, you know, I have a lot of experience with plant medicines. And I'll tell you what, if you want to put your ego right on the table for dissection, uh, there's nothing like 10 grams of mushrooms to just do the job. Um, or 10 grams, I, huh? Well, you know, I like, I, I like to push myself to the very, very edges of, yeah. of, um, my own existence because it's my job as a therapist and a coach to pioneer where it is that people break down and get lost, keep a record of that so that when they come to me for help, I can actually have a sense of what's going on in them from practical experience as opposed to just trying to theorize it. And, and it's been probably the most important approach I've taken. So I, I, I but you know, one of the, one of the hardest things for me during COVID was, like, I mean, I have like plant medicines are, are a really important part of my journey as well. And I believed and still believe um, in their transformative power. But I was so dismayed when at least half, maybe two thirds of the plant medicine community went full on COVID orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. it, it made me question that the utility of these medicines in the first place. I can tell you, I've conducted over 450 healing ceremonies. I've been all the way into death, complete, utter. I didn't even know how the hell I was going to get back. I mean, I've pushed myself to the limit and it's a miracle that I'm here. And I'm grateful that I did it, but I don't encourage anybody to do it because it is very dangerous. But the what you're describing, Charles, and I've seen this thousands of times, you're describing the recreational use of plant medicines versus a real sacred ceremony. When I conduct a real sacred ceremony, there is at least three days that have to be devoted to, and a lot. I'm not, of no, I'm not. I'm not talking about the recreational use because <clears throat> I, I don't like, know anybody. No, that, no, no. That, that does what I do. That flip flopped. I'm talking about like dedicated practitioners who like host ceremonies and who studied with shamans and, and, and I, 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 I've come across like ayahuasqueros who are like highly psychopathic and manipulative, who have presumably done huge amounts of plant medicine 
And as far as recreational goes, my first experience with LSD was recreational. And it turned me inside out <laughs> and completely changed my life. Yeah. So like, I don't know if I buy into your theory there. Well, I mean, the there's thing, something to it, but I think, I think too, that I don't think it's necessarily that you need to buy into mine or I need to buy into yours. I think there's 6 billion people or seven or 8 billion people on the planet and the diversity of what we experience with plant medicines is no different than the diversity of sexual experiences or the taste of chocolate or what religion you believe in. Um, yeah. I, I can only share what I know from the circles I work in and what I've observed. And you're, you're sharing the same. And, and so I think, I'm just giving voice to my dismay, you know? Yeah. I think probably like, yeah, I, I actually think you're right. Like overall, it has a really positive transformative effect. But man, I was traumatized by like the number of people who I considered to be close allies, you know, publicly denouncing me, you know, people like, you know, who I maybe even sat medicine with, you know, like it was, man, I mean, it hurt. Yeah, and I guess maybe I'm I'm kind of voicing a little bit of that right now, and and I think I think though I agree and I understand and I have empathy for you and I've been through that plenty, and I think that those are always times for us to realize how important it is to love ourselves and trust ourselves because none of those people are going to die with you. We come in alone and we die mm -hmm. alone. And, you know, one of the things that I want to add to this dialogue on the issue of plant medicines is that plant medicines and meditation show you where the work needs to be done, but you've got to walk through the door. And I, too, have met a lot of people that have done a lot of plant medicines that keep seeing the same things, the way I'm treating my wife or the way I'm abusing drugs or the way I'm uh, mismanaging my money and the list is long. And then they talk all about the great healing and the great revelation realizations around the campfire after the medicine ceremony. But then two weeks later, they're doing the same damn shit. And what, what a lot of people don't realize, and I, I know you do, but I'm saying it for the benefit of the listeners is that the ego absolutely resists real spiritual practices because the deeper you go, into legitimate spiritual practices, the more of an ego death it is and the more of a self-realization process it is. And you come face to face with the mirror that you were talking about. I am the oceans. There's a Bill Gates in me. There's a Donald Trump in me. And you know what? I've been there many times and it is not an easy thing to manage. It's a hard transition from our cultural underpinnings and the way people like me and you were raised in this culture, education systems, when you, when you come face to face with the divine mirror and you realize that you're looking at the rest of yourself, it can, it can break you. It can make you cry. It can make you go, Oh my God, how do I help the rest of myself? I mean, when you, when you do what I would call legitimate 
plant ceremony, medicine ceremony, whatever the medicine is, as long as it's a proper psychedelic, and you come to these face-to-face -face encounters with the mirror, I call it the divine mirror, the work begins when you start taking stock of what it is that you are willing to do now to become more of what the divine has showed you that you really are. And that is a death to the ego. And it takes, that's why I think having a skilled guide to work with you. And that's why I work with the people that I do. And you can ask Kyle about the kind of work I've done because we've done it together. You know, that's what's missing. And that's one of the things I'm worried about with all the legalization and, and, and medical uptake of plant medicines is because it can alleviate phobias. It can alleviate a lot of things, but it, we, we are at a point where if we don't go on the spiritual firewalk together and really take a hard look at ourselves and each other in, in an open hearted, honest way and ask ourselves, is the way we're living and the way we're believing and the way we're engaging each other in life sustainable? You know, I think anybody with two brain cells holding hands and some common sense would admit what we're doing together is not sustainable. And, and the, the big challenge is, is that we need to carefully look at what religion is and what it was intended to be. We need to carefully look at what education is and what it's intended to be and what it's doing. But when you start looking at all the levels that we've got to reevaluate, it's, it's kind of like your house has just been blown down by a tornado and you don't know where to start picking up the bricks. Well said. So where do we start? <laughs> you know, the kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm well familiar with what you're talking about. <clears throat> One thing that I've, that I've come to is that the work that I'm called to do on myself, it's a lot different from what I thought work on the self was. And the core of it is what you invoked, um, radical self-love, radical self-acceptance. It's not about wielding some kind of shame or some kind of standard of conditional self-approval or conditional self-love in order to goad myself into doing something. That gives the illusion of spiritual progress, but not the reality of it. And it makes it into an achievement. Mm -hmm. And I've been, you know, I mean, really what's characterized the COVID years for me has been this inner process of just like layer after layer falling away. I've done a lot of psychedelic work in the last couple of years, more than I have probably you know, in the, in the 15 years before then. It's interesting that you've done that because that's normally when the environment's that tumultuous, it's normally a pretty tricky time to uh, go very deep on the medicines because it brings the chaos and the turmoil right up for people. And, and oftentimes they're already having a hard time just looking at their phone and their television. But when you have that stuff rise up without the filtration of the ego, it, it can actually really um, cause a yeah. crack up in a lot of people. But, but I feel like the medicines have an intelligence of their own. They do. Um, they, they, they enter into my life at the right moment. 
Um, I, I don't have to force it. They just come or they don't come. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning to trust that. And I think the same is true collectively. Like mm-hmm. I trust the timing of their intervention, even if it might look like, you know, like the corporate interests are getting a hold of them, the medical interests, like like the profiteers, you know, it's not being held sacred, et cetera, like a million reasons why it's wrong. But I trust, like even in the 60s, you know, with like the the popular use of LSD, like I trust that was actually perfect. I think also. it was. I agree. These with medicines you. have an inconceivable intelligence, you know, that that you're you're familiar with when you enter into their realm. Yes, I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, I do think that it needs to be done sacredly and intelligently because I've just seen so many people injured by them. Um, you know, that the, the intelligence that they have is also one that, um, to use a term there's there's they also carry a karmic reality to those that um abuse them and um using them sacredly is is a very subtle matter and well very simple as well but you know sometimes i witness um professional psychedelic practitioners who think of themselves as using it very mindfully very ceremonially but still like the shadow creeps in. Oh and it's yeah. Not like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it can be very subtle, you know, it can be like um, kind of standing in front of the medicine and gaining like a social status or an internal validation because I am a psychedelic practitioner. Like there are like these subtle ego investments in it. Yeah, I'm it's not like saying, being a priest you know, or something. Yeah. Like, and I'm not like meaning to be like hypercritical and stuff. Cause I think despite that, um, the medicines are still working and it's more of like, it's not like either you're doing it in a sacred way or you're not. It is a, a walk, um, that is navigated by frequent reflection and like feeling into like, did that feel good? Did that feel right? What's this little shadow? What's this discomfort here? And am I willing to look at that? Yes. And what makes me willing to look at that is when I am in a state of self-love mm. because then it's not so unsafe to reveal myself to myself yes. or to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what I wrote down because I didn't want to interrupt you is this. Everything you're saying is true. We all have a shadow. That's true. But there's something I've found to be extremely true. Your life is your report card. No matter what you tell yourself about how you're managing your psychedelics or how you're justifying your extramarital affair or whatever it is, your life is your report card. And so I always know that I don't need to worry about whether or not so-and-so is going to... delude themselves too much because when people come to me in a crisis and they start trying to justify, for example, I've had many vegetarians come to me sick. And as soon as I start talking about the need to change their diet, I start getting lectured on how perfect vegetarianism or veganism is and how it's the healthiest diet. And then I just smile and say, 
and why are you here? And how is that working for you? Here you are, you've got this disease, you've got this or that, and you hired me because I spent my life investigating these issues and your body's clearly in denial of your psychological interpretation of your philosophy. So I think if you look at that as the in, in, in the metaphor that we're all on a psychedelic journey, then we can all say life is giving us our report card. And so where's the first brick? I just say, where's your first brick? There's a lot of them. Which one are you willing to lift, work with right now? Start with what you're willing to work with. When I write a program for someone who's in, in, you know, got real problems, I can identify often 20 things they need to do. I usually choose no more than four for each of the four doctors, and I narrow them down to what I think the most essential one from each of those four doctors is. And I say, look, my suggestion is you start with number one, and you include as many of these as you can each day. But if the best thing you can do is one of them, choose the one where you feel most committed, and any one of these things committed to will enhance your life. And I, I really feel if I look at the world and the population as a patient and each human being as a cell in the body of the patient, I say right now we all need to really ask ourselves what is it that we're willing to do to live and love more fully right now and be as brutally honest about it as we can and start participating. Because if we don't, the heat's going to get hotter. The pressure's going to get greater. I don't really know any other way out, but I'd sure love to hear what your thoughts are. <laughs> I think ultimately my choice has to come from another place <clears throat> than fear of the consequences. Um, if I don't change, the heat's going to get greater. It's going to get hotter. If we don't change, the planet is going to die. Um, and we're not going to make it. As long as it's strong enough to motivate you, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you. But what is that place? The only other place I can think of is love. Yeah. Beauty and life. Mm -hmm. Love of life. Love of beauty. There's your values again. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book on climate change, um, which is a bit counter-narrative. I don't think that, uh, you know, carbon dioxide is the main culprit behind our ecological derangement. I think it's ecocide. It's the destruction of forests and wetlands and soil and mm -hmm. insects and whales and fish and so forth. I agree. Um, but I said, the, the whole narrative of we have to change now, otherwise we're not going to survive, still buys into like self-preservation and life prolongation as the highest sacred goal. But when you realize that individually and as a species, someday we are going to die, then the most important thing is how well we live. Yes. What do we create? Mm -hmm. What is the impact that we have on the world? And that isn't even a sacrifice because like the most ecstatic, joyful experiences for me are the ones where I've done something really well and the results are beautiful. And life flourishes because of something I said or something I did. And in doing that, I feel fully at home here. So, yeah, and that's the only thing I would, I, I would you know, add to what you said. 
um, just like this this programming of being under constant threat. You mm-hmm. know, even like the concept of a report card, it it brings up, uh, you know, the trauma of school and the conditional acceptance of authority dependent on my performance on a curriculum that they established. It wasn't my yes. Ultimately, it was that it was it was training in denial of my yes and and suppression of my no. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to be in that classroom. Right. You know? And I guess this returns a bit to a to one of your earlier themes that, that we brought up at the beginning, you know, the the importance of recovering the yes and the no. Yes. Um, when it's been like, I mean, people are so cut off from it today that they don't even know what their yes and their no is. You know, and that's agency, right? If you don't know where your yes or your no is, you've lost your agency. Yes is go and no is stop. Right. It's 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 like every even a bacteria has yes and no. Sure. It's it's like the core of embodiment. They go toward the glucose gradient. They go away from the poison. Hi everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I've got something great to share with you. I think you've all heard plenty in the news about zinc, but what you haven't heard about is Symbiotica's amazing new zinc complex, which is all organic and a unique formulation. And so because Shervin's the expert and the formulator and the founder of Symbiotica, I brought him in to tell us about the zinc complex and when we know we should use it because of the symptoms we're having. So Shervin, how do we know we need this complex? You know, zinc, I'm a mineral guy. Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> Thank like, God. Yeah, hallelujah. I mean, minerals are the root foundation of thought, emotion, and we're actually being present in the physical body. Without minerals, nothing can happen. Vitamins can't operate. Functions in the body can't happen. Hormones can't be made. You know, minerals are everything. And zinc in particular is very unique. I mean, think about it. They dip steel in zinc to keep it from corroding and rusting. That's called yeah. galvanization, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just think about what it's doing in the body. Zinc acts as a super antioxidant in the body from top to bottom. If you're deficient in zinc, most likely you have low libido, Mm -hmm. low energy, depression. You're not motivated. You might have flaky skin. Mm. You're probably not sleeping well. You're probably not metabolizing well. Zinc is so profound in the human body that it crosses almost every barrier in the body. What do I mean by that? It's in your saliva. It's in your snot. Mm -hmm. It's in your piss. It's in your sweat. It's everywhere. And why is that? Because our bodies are designed to operate with good zinc in the body. So Mm -hmm. this formula is powerful. The results that we're having, the testimonials we're having, and just take it from me, this might be the most powerful formula we have at Symbiotica, and that's saying a lot. We have three forms of zinc in here. Two of them are trademarked. We also have two forms of copper in here. Copper and zinc might displace each other. That's why we have to have the perfect ratios in there. Uh And then we also have selenium in there, Mm. which creates the trifecta of these three critical minerals that we're not getting in our foods. Most people aren't eating oysters every day. Mm. And sometimes you just want to be able to reach in your cabinet and grab one little capsule I highly recommend eating this with your largest meal of the day Mm. because it's that strong until your body acclimates to it. I'm very, very happy about how this turned out and the results that it's having for both men and women. Excellent. You know, I know that uh, selenium deficiency is linked to 
uh, heart heart problems, holes in the hearts, heart valve dysfunction, cancers, yeah, diabetes. Like, uh, on. New Zealand has a d- deficiency of selenium in their soil, and they were having a lot of problems with heart problems in the sheep there. Yep. And they tracked it to selenium deficiency. And I've also known of people that needed selenium to heal their heart. So what a great combination. So if you want to get your zinc complex, go to symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And as a Living 4D listener, use the code CHECK15 on checkout and get 15% off your zinc complex and any of Symbiotica's amazing products. So enjoy and please take care of yourself. We all need to get our hands together and make the world a better place right now. So if your zinc complex and your Symbiotica products help us do that, then that's a worthy investment. Lots of love. You know, I've studied behavioral change a lot. I have to, to do the work I do. But one of the things that people that are experts in behavioral change have identified is that there's basically two types of people. Those that have a positive motivational strategy and those that have a negative motivational strategy. And some of the examples I've read in books on this is your parents say, if you do your chores for the next week, I will give you such and such reward versus if you don't, I will take your privileges to use such and such a way. And interestingly, the research shows that a lot more people respond to negative motivational strategies than positive ones, which is, I believe, linked to the what's called the negative bias built into our biology, because in nature, there's a lot of things that will poison you and kill you and eat you. So our biology is looking for potential threats all the time, but we often haven't had the the guidance or the coaching or the awareness to realize when our negative motivational bias from a biological perspective is imprinting itself into our psychological perspective. So I think that, you know, my use of the term, your life is giving your report card is really saying the circumstances of your life are mirroring your choices, conscious or unconscious back to you. Um, I've got a set of universal principles by Arnold Patton that are quite beautiful. I think it's principle number seven basically says, if you don't like what you're creating in your life, look carefully at what you're choosing unconsciously. And, and you know, it's only when you start looking into the unconscious that it it can become conscious, just like if you move into a new house and it's got a cellar, but it's pitch black in there. You've got to get a flashlight or you'll never know what's in there, whether it's gold or boogeymen or old burned out furniture, you know? So I think that, you know, we all have to be careful about um, debating ourselves out of the reality of our life and out of our circumstances, or we can end up playing chess or checkers with ourselves for years on end and wake up realizing that we're still playing the same game and the diet that we should have looked at or the relationship we should have looked at or the drug use we should have looked at five, six years ago has gotten much worse. And ultimately what I've found in my work is that the only way I've ever been able to help people get out of that game is to identify what they love enough to change for. That's why my, my, the first 
step in my system is one love. I quote psychologist Jerry Wesh, who says, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. So I say, if you have something that you love enough to really grow for and to become and to step into, you know, for me, it's my children. And for me, it's my students. And for me, it's, I want to, I want to, when I die, I want to know that I really honestly did my best to leave the world a little better than how I found it in, in whatever way that I could. And that's what I use, not fear of nobody's going to like me or will I be considered good enough or whatever. I, I personally want to have peace in myself. That, that's what, what I think is the driver, but I'm, I'm really sharing the negative and positive motivational strategies because I'm, I appreciate what you say about the report card, but I'm also saying people can keep playing games like that. But ultimately at the end of the day, you, you got to say, what do I love enough to grow for? And where's my growth edge and where you find your growth edges. Look at your life. How's your relationship with your wife, your coworkers? How's your relationship with your body? How's your relationship with whatever you believe source to be? How's your relationship with the people that you don't like? You know, there's one of my favorite sayings is you can always tell who your God is. He hates the same people you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I understand. You're using report card more like in 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 this in the sense of not like to get an A or an F, but in like how is it actually working? Yes, more like reflection. Yeah, yeah like almost an inventory. Yeah. That says here's the actual state. Of, yep, take stock yep. and say yep. What does my life look like if I keep living this way for another year, two years, or three years? Is it making me feel more whole or is it leaving me scared and stressed? Or, you know, but that that itself takes a degree of honesty, right? You get to, to look into the crystal ball of oneself requires some honesty. Otherwise, you know, you're wasting a crystal ball. <laughs> and you yeah. might be wasting the mushrooms at the same time. <laughs> mm -hmm. What what do you think reality is? We never got to that. I want to that that's something I'd love to hear from your philosophical mind. You know, it's funny by that that like runs up against limitations of language so quickly. Well, um, then sing. <laughs> because when when yeah, when you say like, what do you think reality is? The word is already kind of implies like this objective thing uh -huh. outside of ourselves. And there's really no easy way around that in the English language. So, I mean, I could say reality is relationship. That, oh, that good. Existence is relationship. That relationship is primary. And that we are not separate beings having relationship, but we are created by relationship. Indeed, I agree. Yeah. I asked Laird Hamilton because he's a good friend of mine. I've been working with Laird for, I don't know, since 1996 or seven and Gabby. And uh, him and I have philosophical conversations now. And then I said one day to him, I said, Laird, what do you think reality is? And he gave me a very good answer. He said, Paul, reality is what works. <laughs> <laughs> There's some truth to that. <laughs> and it works until it doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was looking at some of your questions here. I was really looking forward to some of the later ones. Well, we go, to go for it. Jump to them. Which one do you want to talk about? I don't know. Let's see. 
Um, I mean, I don't know which, what's, what's, uh, what would you actually, like, what are you actually curious for me to speak on? Not so much as I would like my audience to hear what you say about this, but like personally, um, what, what would, what are you actually curious about from me here? I, I, you know, because you do, you do obviously put a lot of thought into your writings and you have written a lot about the, you know, what's going on in the world. You know, you're how old now? 54. You're an elder. Getting there. You know, in a native tribe, you'd be an elder straight up. I, I, you know, part of the reason I wanted to bring you on the show is because I, I really wanted to give everybody a chance to, to have a look at what everything that's going on looks like through the mind of a philosophically intact, deep thinking elder. Hmm. Um, I, I really am just interested in, and I suspect others are interested in, or you wouldn't have so many followers in, in what you really think's going on and what it means. And what, what is it that if you were the chief of the tribe called the nation or the world, what would you be suggesting? Yeah, that's an interesting um, inroad here. Um, following the reality question, we could also say what, what we could ask the same of truth, which I would also say is a function of a relationship, which means that, I could say something that, you know, sounds wise or sounds knowledgeable, and I can say it to one person, and it is an important truth that they need to hear. And I could say it to another person, and it's an intellectual distraction. And I could say it to a third person, and it's actually counterproductive for them to hear it. Mm -hmm. Like, one example is the, the, the truth that you are not your body. To one person, that might be like really help them de-identify with, with their illness, you know, and, yes. and their hangups. Another person that might like, like unground them even more because they're already in in you know a state of spiritual escapism. So it's like you can't say objectively is that true. It depends on how the words are heard, and this is this is the the puzzle that I have when I'm on online programs. Um, who am I actually speaking to? You're speaking and to the rest of yourself, Charles. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what I might say that I need to hear might be different than what I want to say to you or what I want to say to your audience. Mm -hmm. You realize you're identifying why it's so hard to be a chief, right? I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, it is to relate to a collective is a different occupation of the human being than to relate to a person, to relate to an abstraction. Um, but I think that like, if I really tune in, I can sense even forward in time, the people who are going to be listening to this. And I guess um, at this point in the conversation, I feel a little bit of maybe frustration um, or impatience or like there's 
a desire for something that is not as abstract. And that's like more like, you know, more in, in the gut, you know, I was going to say in the heart, but it's more like something more in the bones, you know, like one of the, uh, mottos that I've, I wrote an essay entitled with this title, the rehearsal is over. We've been practicing for the times that we are in for a long time. We've been applying them to our inner lives, transforming. And now we're thrust onto the actual stage. It's not about a practice anymore. So much is about like, you know, it's framed in terms of a practice. What's your practice? We're done practicing. Mm-hmm. This is a real show. Mm-hmm. That's what came up in COVID for me. I was like, okay, it's now. And that has not changed. And that has made me really impatient with like too much metaphysical stuff, you know, and too many principles and, and formulas. Like, I want to cut through the shit, you know, I want to actually speak the truth that is unique to the person in the conversation with me. And it's not like I am the delivery of the truth. It's that the truth arises from our meeting right now. And we can both serve it. Like, um, and anything else, I'm getting tired of it. Like, I'm even like thinking about, you know, I want to shrink my audience. Maybe I want to only have audiences of one or a small group. Maybe the theory of change that I accepted to some degree of the more people you reach, the bigger the change. Maybe that's wrong. Or maybe that's no longer the truth. Like the truth is not static. Maybe right now, for me, the truth is that I can have the biggest impact by creating much smaller bubbles of resonance that where the 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 field of the future echoes and re-echoes and intensifies. And each person in that field carries it forth in this um, fully uh, unfolded form. Like maybe that, like everything is on the table. And I realize I'm talking about myself a lot here, but I think other people will connect too with this idea of the rehearsal is over and being tired of like impatient, like done. Let's just say done. Done with finding the metaphysical or personal growth principles and and getting it all figured out before I actually can do anything, you know? And I'm not like saying you do this or whatever, but I'm just saying like this this degree of this 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 degree of impatience and just wanting to cut through the shit, you know what I mean? Like let's be real here and now, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And this is what is I, the shit? I, yeah. I need to know what the shit is that you're talking about. Because if nobody knows that, they don't know where to get the knife out and start cutting, nor what to be real about. You know, the question that rises in my mind as I listen to you is, 
What would you tell your children if they were 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 and go, dad, what the freaking hell is going on in the world right now? And what do we do? we got kids coming to school that we don't know whether they're boys or girls. The teachers are telling us all sorts of weird crap. You're telling me to be careful with my phone, not to look at certain things, not to play certain games. Dad, it's like we're boxed in. What do I do, dad? What do I do, dad? Yeah. It's funny. I got a kid at 17 and nine. So bracketing both ends of that range that you just said. I don't let the nine-year-old have a phone, but I can feel into what you're saying. And it is, now is the time to cultivate self-reliance. Where I agree. It's not that you don't, it's not that you ignore all of the information and all the opinions from other people. You take those in, just like the king takes the counsel of all of his ministers. But he doesn't subordinate himself to any of them. He takes it all in, and then he makes his choice. He makes the decision. And that is, I have all sons, four sons. And I wish I'd understood this better when I was a younger father. But that is what to prepare for now is every man a king. And that, like the shadow archetypes of the king, I don't know if you have you read King, Magician, Warrior, Lover? I, I have it. I've read pieces of it, but I've studied Jung's and Joseph Campbell's and many others' work, so I'm, I'm yeah. hip to where you're going. Yeah, like he, he names all the uh, shadow archetypes around these, you know, like the tyrant. Yeah, is the shadow archetype of the king where he doesn't listen to the ministers or the weakling, mm-hmm. um, where he just is not really the sovereign, but he's swayed back and forth. And in, in this time when so much of the information from the ministers is actually from evil whisperers and not from true counselors, I'm talking about the media talking about academia. I'm talking about this whole system that is trying to program us uh, in violation of our sovereignty. At this time, this is what I want to say to to the young people, you know, um, you're on your own and that doesn't mean alone, but that means that you have to find true ministers. Yeah. How do you recognize them, though? A parallel culture, almost. You recognize them um, through your body reaction to them. It's instinct. Like some people, you just trust them. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they're dangling something in front of you. It's not because they're manipulating you. Like there's no question. Like you meet them and you just, you would trust them with the most precious thing you own. You would trust them with your child in that moment. And other people, you just don't trust them. And you have every reason why you should, but you just don't. That's the the primal yes and no that I'm talking about. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. The problem we have today, Charles, is that so many people are disembodied. You know, you're talking about instincts. That requires you be in your body. Body instincts are bodily, biological realities. Jung describes how archetypes intersect with instincts. That's how they act on us. Mm -hmm. But we've got 
a plethora of the world population that is obese, has metabolic syndrome, is on multiple medical drugs, has multiple comorbidities, morbidities, has unresolved childhood trauma, psychological, sexual. I mean, we, we, we really have a conundrum. You see, I would imagine your kids are in their body. My kids are in their body because that's what we exemplify to them. Do you don't do you, lose hope though? No, I, I, I haven't I lost hope, man. I'm here with you. I'm in the yeah. game. Maybe the worst thing's going to happen to me is I'm going to die and I'll probably just take a long break and do the whole thing over again. The thing is though, the thing is like this, like no matter how immersed we are in virtual reality and online world and the social media and the metaverse and all that shit, we are still bodies. Much as we are like, as it is suggested otherwise, suggested that the essence of our humanness is the mind, much as our society elevates the pursuits of the mind above those of the body, giving status to the, you know, hedge fund manager over the plumber and the professor over the farmer, much as that is all true, our, we are still our bodies. And that body knowledge is even for like the obese person addicted to reality TV, even for that person, it is actually instantly available with the right invocation that's in the, the right that's, moment. That's where the coach, the guide, the therapist, the chief, the medicine man, the elder, that's their function. That's the function I'm handing you right now. <laughs> yep. Instantly available. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, like, you know, uh, I mean, this is something that I'm learning as well, you know, for myself. I'm, to to because the programming to distrust what I know as a function of my direct experience, my senses, my body is so deep. That programming is like so pernicious and and um, pervasive that it's like I feel like I need pretty much all the help I can get to recover and make that more consistent. Um, that that way of navigating the world. Hi, everybody. This is Paul Check. I come to give you a little message. I want to share some empathy. I know how hard it is to change your behavior when you got some bad diet and lifestyle habits and you look at that coffee or you look at the sugar or you look at the junk food that you're in love with and you reach for it because it's quick and easy and you keep telling yourself, I need to change, I need to change, I need to change. But eventually the system breaks down and you get motivated by the pain teacher. But what if I gave you an opportunity to try something that would help you start the process of behavior change and enjoy it and look forward to it? Well, I have something for you. It's Organifi's Red Juice. It tastes great and it's loaded with nutrition and lots of vitality for you. And I got Drew Canoli here to tell us why it works so well for behavior change and increasing your life force and your vitality. Drew, what's some, what's the magic in that red juice? Because everybody seems to love it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Paul. Sometimes when we're craving things, mm. it's hard to switch a, a habit, yeah. a behavior. Yeah. So I looked at that fundamental fact and I'm like, well, what could we create that people could crave mm. that actually tasted great? Mm -hmm. And that's when red juice was born for Good. energy. So between the berries, the blueberries, the raspberries, mm. the strawberries, yes. the best quality organic glyphosate residue free, yes. the rhodiola and the cordyceps, yes. we were onto something. We sweetened Definitely. it with a dash of monk fruit mm. and literally I started to come to life. 
when I drank this. I had yeah. so much more energy than I would mm-hmm. normally have. Stamina went through the roof. Yeah. I actually shaved off 45 seconds off my mild time drinking red juice before I ran. Wow. Talk about an uptick in nitric oxide production in your body, right? <laughs> Something went up. Yeah. <laughs> we know speed Actually, <laughs> it's funny you say that because I get messages all the time about sexy time. Oh, and yeah? When people drink red juice. Something's like, going up. Something's going up. And I get so many messages about that. That's funny you brought that up. Well, we hope it's the flag these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So if you're looking for more energy and stamina and something that tastes great to where you could shift your cravings, keeping your hunger and your energy in check. And feel good about it. And feel good about it. And you might even break down a little bit and wander back. But if you've got some natural sweetness and a lot of nutrition, you probably, if you're honest with yourself, won't need as many chips or as many mm-hmm. of whatever your little thing is, yeah. but you can do this naturally and easily. And that's what I'm all about, naturally and easily and honestly. And you know, it all starts with being honest with yourself. So if you want a great tasting behavioral switch technique that's really good for you, It has a lot of knock-on benefits for you and your whole family. Try Red Juice. Go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And because I love you, Living 4D listeners, so much, I've organized for you to get a 20% discount with the code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20. And that's as fast as I can say that. I love you guys. Enjoy your Red Juice. I just want to say, like... um. We have to be able to see others. This is the role of a coach, okay? This is the true coach. I derive this archetype from my high school coach. He was an outstanding coach, like 17 years undefeated cross-country teams, you know. And the reason that he was so effective was that he knew better than we did what we were capable of. He saw us as more capable than we saw ourselves. A story that we hold about another person is an invitation to step into that story. And I'm sure that you do this instinctually, Paul. Mm-hmm. Like you refuse to buy into people's story of weakness or incapacity or limitation. No question. I, a good example is I get people coming to me all the time saying, I've got ADD or I've got ADHD or I've got a learning disability. And the first thing I say is, Please never say that around me again. Never say it to yourself again. And what you can say, what I will accept, is that you have a unique mind and a unique brain and a unique way of perceiving. And it's up to you to learn how to use your gifts. Because if you keep pulling that crutch out, you're going to make excuses for the rest of your life and you won't become the person you came here to be. But if you take, if you take your gifts and find out what door that key fits, magic's going to happen. Yeah. Mr. Horner would not accept excuses, <laughs> my coach. <laughs> like if you tried it, you would regret it. Uh, he, would, he would invite you to hang up your fur-lined jock if you, uh, you know, said you weren't coming to practice that day. But the thing is, he also didn't hold us to a standard beyond. Like, he saw us as more than we saw ourselves, but it wasn't unrealistic either. Yeah. You know? He knew where the growth edge is at. Exactly. And I I guess if there's like one thing I would would leave with, um, it would be to understand the power of our seeing of others and what we can call them into, which requires clearing the mirror image of those limitations in ourselves. 
but you cannot see somebody as capable if you don't really believe in yourself as capable. Absolutely. And, and it's reciprocal. Then like, how do you fix that? <laughs> well, partly it's because we, through the generosity of the universe, when that impatience and that disquiet with who we've been being gets strong, it becomes a magnetic call to the universe to provide the people that will see us as more than we have been. So it's kind of not an individual accomplishment. This, this process of enlightenment is a group activity. And so to the extent that any of us have received that and have had a coach Horner or, or a mentor in their lives who saw them as more than they were, had been being, I mean, to the extent that we've had that, we can be that for others. And I got, I want to like affirm both the gratitude for having received that in our lives and the feeling of, of honor to be able to offer that to others, to offer our seeing of the real human being that refuses to believe all of the negative stories we're told about each other, even about like Bill Gates, you know what I mean? Like to, if I were, if, if I stepped into a conversation with him, even knowing all of the dark stuff, I would refuse to believe that that's really who he is. I would look for his divinity. And I don't want to pick on the guy, okay? I don't know. In person, I've never met him, okay? Maybe he's, but but let's just say like the person that you, you know, uh, demonize the most, like, can you step into that with the orientation of seeing the divine being there? Because if you don't, have that orientation, then you won't look for it. And if you don't look for it, you won't see it. It's not about pretending to see something that, that you don't actually see. It's an orientation to look yes. for Yes. There's a, a saying that you've probably heard that it really highlights exactly what you're saying. And it goes like this. If a pickpocket sees a saint, he only sees his pocket. But when the saint sees the pickpocket, he sees God. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what we're going through collectively is ultimately directing us back to the very deepest level of ourselves, which points to what is our ultimate belief about who we are, what we are, and what we're an expression of. And this is why Jung said of the Imago Dei archetype, which means image of deity in Jungian psychology, that's the first archetype that emerges in the psyche, and all of them are extensions of that. Jung says something very powerful. It's impossible to tell whether your Imago Dei creates you or you create it. Mm -hmm. But, you, you know, at the end of the day, we're all getting a chance to right now to really ask ourselves, what is life? What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Why am I here? What is the universe? What is the world? And, you know, those seem like very deep questions, but ultimately where you land on the scale of answering those questions for yourself and how comfortable you are with that answer ultimately has a huge impact on all the relationships that you have. Because you see, if I see God in everyone, then I see Bill Gates fulfilling a role. That's why I said sometimes the devil comes along and does magic, but it looks like evil, right? And yeah. so, you know, 
I have a saying called the pain teacher. When the pain teacher shows up, it's a good idea to pay attention and, and listen because the pain teacher just keeps turning it up until you do get right. it. And so I, I really appreciate what you're saying. And, and I think it, it boils down to we're in a position where we all really need to ask ourselves, what is it about? What, why am I here? And what is the most important thing to me? And I think most people would, without a lot of philosophical training, probably eventually come to the realization that the most important thing is love. And love does not ex exist without relationship. There has mm -hmm. to be an I-thou. I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. And ultimately, the only way God could experience love is to create diversity or individuality because as one, there is no other. Therefore, by creating the story and, and populating it with the characters and creating the illusion that I'm not God, then I can find Charles and find a piece of me and find support or camaraderie or kinship or even the competition that grows me. But in that illusion of separation, there's now an agency for love. There's now an agency for self-realization for both of us, for growth. And I, I, my dream is that we all come to realize that what's more important than are you vaccinated or not, or what political party do you vote for or not, or what are your views on this or that is I'm a human, you're a human, and we not only need each other, but we need mother nature because without her, none of us has the opportunity to have the experience of being human. And so I really hope that we come to the realization that the way we're living and what we're funding is ultimately destroying the infrastructure of the game board that allows the myth to be acted out, which is where God realizes what it is. And so, I mean, that's just my own interpretation and it's my response to what I'm hearing you say because I'm taking your words in and, and, and I'm using, I'm pretending I'm your own child or your own student and say, well, how do I handle what Charles is saying right now? And ultimately that's where it takes me. One of the questions I had for you is, you know, I cited Jeremy Lent's excellent book, The Web of Meaning, and he identified that native cultures over time recognize what they call the four R's of sustainability, relationship, responsibility, reciprocity, and redistribution. And, and when I read that, I, I thought, wow, that is really deep wisdom. And it's hard to argue against that. I and I put that in there because I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And not just on those four R's, but on where you feel the level of importance of those four R's are today for all of us. Relationship, responsibility, reciprocity, and redistribution. Yes. Yeah. So relationship. Um, Ubuntu is the word. I am because you are. Mm. If the rainforest dies, 
It's not only my conditional dependence on it that makes me suffer loss. It's that something in me dies too. Yes. That's relationship. Responsibility. In English, it has like these overtones of obligation um, and even guilt. But another meaning of it is the ability to respond and even like the necessity to respond, the urge to respond. Um, That comes from, I mean, really it comes from gratitude. Yeah. And and makes you want to respond. Love. I mean, it's our responsibility to care for our children. And if you don't care for yourself well enough to have response ability, then how can you care for anyone else, children or otherwise? So I think, you know, we all have to look carefully at how we're managing ourselves because whatever we're doing ourselves, we're doing to the world. Yeah. And that's reciprocity. Turning that around, whatever we do to the world, we do to ourselves. Amen. It's the echo effect. Yeah. And, and redistribution. Um, I'm not sure what he really means by that. It could be. Uh, it means that when you have more than you need, you share it with others that don't have what you have. In other words, if I've got a stockpile of grain and it's just sitting there rotting in silos, I give it to the hungry people. Right. So it's, it's um, robust networks of flow so that wealth doesn't stagnate in, in fetid pools. Uh, yeah, it uh, sounds solid to me. Um, and we could ask, you know, what's the next step toward those for our society? Sustainability isn't really, though, my orientation. I don't want to just sustain what we have. Like, if we could sustain our current society which is what a lot of the sustainability discourse is about. You know, let's find some clean energy fuel source to replace fossil fuels. Well, to me, it's what's a lot more important is what we're using the fuels for, not whether their use is sustainable. Yeah. From the native perspective, I will help share what it means to me from my studies of this. Sustainability means we need to keep the water clean or we're going to kill everything that supports us. Um, We have to have responsibility for knowing what is sacred and what supports life. And if we don't respond to, to honor and respect and support that there's ramifications. Reciprocity is redistribution in the sense that, um, the relationship is reciprocal. It's a give and take. Love is a give and take. Walter Russell speaks of what he calls the love principle. And he says that for love to, to work, there has to be a balance of giving and taking. So from a sustainability perspective, what the natives are saying is if you extract more from, from nature than she can regenerate, then you're inducing death. Yeah. And what I'm saying is that's not quite enough for me. Because the future that I fear the most is not one where we humanity perishes because we've destroyed the planet. It's one where humanity persists despite having destroyed the planet. 
<laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, I call well, it the concrete world. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't got there yet, Charles. You're ahead of me on that one. I never like I'm. I'm so concerned about what's right in front of me. I must admit that you've now given me another thing to meditate on. So. You know, this is what you gave me is flashes of, of half man, half robot with no soul and nobody knows what we are anymore. It's Mad Max kind of thing. Well, even simpler than that, though, like like, you know, about precision fermentation and lab grown food, like they're like, if we can just if we destroy all the soil, well, we don't need the soil. We can grow it all in factories. Well, that's a philosophical uh, debate point that I would have a lot to say about. But but they're doing it. Yes, they're you know? doing it. But that's also like whether or not they can actually succeed. Right. As long as we we say that sustainability is the highest god, then we open the door to that future. But if we say that that the highest god is to serve life and beauty, and that the purpose of the human being is the same as the purpose of all other species, which is to make the world even more alive and more beautiful. Like there's no species that just takes. Every species serves the well-being of other species. And when we come into our maturity as a species, as a civilization, we will do that too. And the earth will benefit from our presence. I think it has. I think it has because we can't separate ourselves from the earth, our lessons and our growth have to be the earth it's if you see the earth as a being but you know your talk about the lab growth idea of sustainability my first reaction to that is the word human is a derivative of the word humus which is soil it's topsoil it's the organic life it's how death promotes life it's how death feeds life and so when you when not you personally but when when people start thinking well we can do this all in a lab well, you can do that on the moon too, but you, yeah. you're you no longer of the earth at that point. You're now becoming something that can be sustained out of a lab and you've lost the humus, which is, you know, when you look into the microbiome and the amount of genes that come into us through the viruses, bacteria, fungi, and creatures of the soil, we, we whether we realize it or not, our entire psychology, our our, our sense of who and what we are is very, very influenced by that. And as we've disrupted that natural connection, we've become more and more unnatural to the point now we're sitting here philosophizing about what we're going to be in this sustainable but non-human existence. I mean, you know. Yeah, but it, I'm not just philosophizing about it. it it's ultimately... The, the sustainability narrative, as it is usually deployed, is toxic. Yeah. Because it points us toward the wrong values. The value is not surviving on a personal level or a societal level. That's not the highest value. No. The highest value is, 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 is participating in the unfolding of life and beauty. We have to orient toward that. When we orient toward that, sustainability will happen as a side effect. I think that the native cultures that came up with this from my extensive studies of native culture worship nature. They, they saw each creature in nature as a unique intelligence 
that was worthy of study, honor, and respect. They had ceremonial yes. practices for on its hunting. own, for its own sake, for its worthy own sake of, of respect, for its own sake, not because we're not going to survive without you. No, no, it no. may be true that we won't survive without you, but you have a value innately. No, nature has a value. We're full. It, 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 these are all sacred beings. We're saying the same thing, and I'm saying we have to turn that, turn the dialogue away from like this technocratic. Carbon numbers. You oh, know, absolutely! And, and, and I'm a hundred percent with you. The sacredness of life, and that's yeah. why I brought up the humus thing because that that narrative is marching us towards. Well, just look. Anyone that's got the mRNA vaccine is no longer a human. If you read the literature from Pfizer, it actually states. You are, you have this technology in your body and we own this technology, right? So we're, if anyone's taken that vaccination, they are now, uh, not what they were. And if we keep going, we're not going to be what we were. That's right. And these people that came up with these four R's saw everything in nature as kin as family and that's what was important was to sustain the family because the family is the foundation of love it's the foundation of growth it's the foundation of future generations they thought seven generations deep at least and i i i personally when i read those four r's from that perspective i thought this needs to be on mainstream media and there needs to be wise elders guiding us and how to begin to implement this in our life. You know, like I love the podcast because I can enjoy a relationship with a person like you that has viewpoints that may support mine, may challenge mine, or may radically differ. But I get the opportunity to engage in an exchange that grows me. And I have the responsibility to love, honor, and respect you regardless of what your opinion is. And the act of a dialogue is reciprocity and the redistribution is probably 50,000 people that are going to listen to it and hopefully join into this with us. I, I can imagine right now at various points, there's people saying, I agree with Charles and saying, oh, I agree with Paul, or I agree with them both, or I'm not sure. I have to think about this. And, and, you know, so my point is we're, redistrib- we're redistributing ways of thinking and ways of pondering on things and maybe ways of even looking into ourselves. I, that, that's at least that's how I perceive it. Mm-hmm. You know, my last kind of uh, point on our journey, which has been very fun. Thank you. Um, my podcast, I, I just recently had out with Jonathan Bluestein, who who's really a, a very interesting man. Um, we looked at some of the historical buildup as to how people got into the situation they're in. And, you know, without repeating the whole podcast at the end, because it was quite philosophical, I said, Jonathan, give us three practical things that everybody really needs to be aware of and do right now. And his three things were gong fu, which really means developing a skill at something because Jonathan's position was until you've really developed mastery at one thing, you're probably never going to truly develop it at anything. Therefore choose something that you're called from your heart 
to master and do the work and find a mentor and develop mastery so you know how to achieve mastery. Second, stand up for your rights. Don't be a pushover. Don't be violent, but know when to say no when your rights are being invaded as a human being, your sovereignty. And his third suggestion was create community, find people that you feel harmony with, you have alignment of values with, that you can support each other because right now we need community. We need each other. And it's a lot more likely that you're going to grow in and participate in a community of people that you share values with than otherwise. Um, I would just love to hear if you have anything to add to that or what your thoughts are. And, you know, I'm handing you the microphone as the father or the chief because now is your chance to say, boys and girls, my fellow um, tribal members or citizens of the world, here's what I think is important right now. Practical. No metaphysical fluff, just right down in the dirt, baby. Yeah, those are really, those, those are a good start. Um, I'd say I could add to it. Get really honest with yourself about what you know and what you don't know. And where that honesty comes from is to release self-judgment. Mm, that's a good point. And then apply that to others. Release the judgment of others. Mm. That is what is paralyzing our society. The us versus them. The dehumanization. Without coherence, we will not be able to do anything, much less solve the crises that we face. And coherence is impossible when we are fighting each other all the time, which comes from a false view of each other. Yes. And I want to say also to, to touch the part of yourself within that knows why you are here. Soul. And to trust that, that it's real. And when you do that, you will know, your, your choices will become easy. You'll know what to do. Even if you may not listen to it, but you will know what to do because you'll be oriented toward whatever version of service to life and beauty on earth is. You'll know. I'm trying to think of something more, even more practical, but um, these are actually really practical. Yeah, I think if we give more than too much, then it starts to paralyze people. Yeah. I mean, if you come up with something in the next minute, feel free. But there's something I would love to hear from you. What is your bright future for the forecast? What is your bright forecast for the future, I should say? What, what do you think is possible right now? You know, Aubrey Hepburn says, nothing's impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. And I, I really love that, especially coming from a, an actress. I think that was very deep mm -hmm. for you know what we typically attribute to people that act in movies. Um, but, you know... You've obviously spent a lot of time 
digging into this and to yourself. So I'd love to hear your, your possible, your, your future, you, you know? Yeah. We're both aware of what seem like miraculous healings of the human body. Yes. People with stage four cancer, et cetera, et cetera, medically incurable conditions disappearing sometimes overnight. What's possible for the human body is also possible for the ecological body mm. and for the social body, the body politic. It's time to get ready for that, for that level of transformation that takes on a life of its own once, it's, once it gets going. And it is getting going. We talked about this before, um, like with the penetration of psychedelics into the elite institutions. It's not visible on the surface yet, but as it gets going, it poses a question. What is mine to do in this miracle? And really, that becomes obvious when we accept that it is that we are in the course of a miracle. And I don't know, it might sound like wishful thinking or something, but it's actually illogical to discard what I just said. We have to take in all the data points. Every miracle that you've witnessed or heard about, do you really take that in? Yes, to your I world do. <laughs> Yeah. And I would like to say I do, but I can't actually say that I fully do. Some of them I take in, some more deeply than others. But there are still ways that I live in a limitation that actually contradicts what I have seen and experienced. And I'm in a process of integrating it more deeply. Yeah. And I want to welcome other people into this process as well. And and because if you trust it, it helps me trust it. Yes. And if I trust it, it helps other people trust it. And this is the phase transition that I'm talking about, mm -hmm. that that. It takes on a life of its own when each of the little embers of sanity gets closer to the other ones and they all burst into flame together. Mm. And so this is what we can do. We can, we can be allies in the incorporation of all of the excluded data points that were systemically excluded, you know, the, the, um, the denial of UFOs, you know, and, and all of the, the whole world of holistic health. I mean, everything, the, the psi phenomena, like, like all this stuff, we have to bring it all in. That is the revolution. We bring it all in and we help each other bring it all in by saying, you're not crazy. I saw it too. And you helped me bring it in to the next level also. Yeah. That's the most practical thing I can leave you with. I think that's great. You know, and, and my response to that and my closing comments is that in my experience all miracles are acts of love and i think that because we're facing a lot of challenges and we have our own challenges personally and relationally and with the bigger issues my practices is when i face a, a challenge like that or a question as i just ask myself what would love do now and and Sometimes it's a very hard road to follow, but I feel if we really realize that miracles are acts of love and we ask ourselves, what would love do now? 
that we, if we act on that, then we will feed the merger of the sparks that creates the fires of transformation together. Well said. Charles, thank you. Very, very interesting, deep, fun, honest dialogue. And um, really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us all. And um, thank you for all the hard work you've done to add awareness, value, and education and wisdom to the world. And uh, where can people find more about you or your offerings? Um, most of my writing I publish on Substack now, charleseisenstein.substack. I mean, if you do an internet search, you'll find me. I have a website, charleseisenstein.org. Okay. Yeah, that's basically it. Really appreciate it, Charles. Keep, you know, I, 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 my dream is you keep doing what you're doing. Um, there's a reason. Oh, so I have a book coming out too. I should mention that. That's a good idea. That. Yeah. Yeah. The Coronation. It's a, a collection of my COVID essays with some extra material and kind of a personal and social um, journal of the pandemic. Okay. And is yep. that going to be found on Amazon or your website yeah. or everywhere, you know, everywhere it can be yeah. shared. Good. Yeah. The Coronation by Charles yeah. Eisenstein. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. And uh, blessings to your family and blessings to all of us. I will close by saying thank you to my sponsors for all your love and support, your great products. Thank you to all of you for listening and doing your best to add more love in the world. I hope you enjoyed Charles's action items and the revisiting of Jonathan Bluestein's action items. And I hope that our conversation today was um, something that brought you into yourself for your own reflection and for your own growth. And uh, I look forward to sharing more with you all soon. Lots of love. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Charles Eisenstein. You can pick up a copy of Charles's latest book, The Coronation, Essays from the COVID Moment, from Amazon, bookshop.org, or chelseagreen.com. You can find Charles online at charleseisenstein.org or connect with him on Facebook at Charles Eisenstein Official, on Instagram at Charles underscore Eisenstein, or on Twitter at C Eisenstein. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Czech videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chekiva.com. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at czechinstitute.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.